On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news and recent survey experiences, including a discussion on dealing with a rude surveyor, and we celebrate our 200th episode with the staff of the podcast and the staff of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and we'll discuss current issues in ASCs. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCpodcast.com. Welcome to episode 200 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for September 28, 2023. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, co-host of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape, and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of the recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise that all ASCs stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines that are issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. Joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry and he is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So uh, we've been waiting for this for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even remember uh, celebrating our 100th episode, <laughs> but here we are at 200 episodes. And uh, we've been preparing for this for a while. We brought together our uh, our team, including all of the co-hosts before you, Sue. Um, not everybody knows this, but Sue is... Uh, only been the co-host for five and a half of our six years. Uh, we did have other co-hosts until we, uh, until Sue uh, was uh, coerced into doing this uh, for the rest of her life. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's an incredible uh, two hundred episodes, six years, grown from a very simple podcast to include our patron program, our premium mm-hmm. access program, all the conferences and boot camps, et cetera. It's hard to believe that we've uh, done that. It's still hard to believe that it's. Uh, it's been six years that we've been mm-hmm. working on it. So, uh, again, Sue, I want to thank you for uh, taking on the responsibility of a co-host. Putting up with me for six years <laughs> and 200 episodes has been no easy task. We've got a lot going on um, as we as we uh, celebrate our 200th episode anniversary. Uh, we uh, are we just announced two full-day conferences in November on November 16th and 17th. The first one is on the 16th is the Introduction to Finance and Accounting. 
Uh, that's a full day, eight hours, uh, and it is going to have uh, AEU credits also. Mm-hmm. Um, conference, um, uh, kind of going through the very basic information about finance mm-hmm. and accounting. And uh, Sue, you and I were we just did the boot camp uh, in uh, in August yes. uh, for business office managers. And one uh, piece of feedback we got not only from that boot camp but also from our patron members mm-hmm. is that there really is a need out there for very basic introductory information about finance and accounting. Yeah, everybody comes at it with a different level of experience and <laughs> right. training, so we really have to cover all levels of that. Yeah, and, and again, I don't want to pick on nurses uh, mm-hmm. any more than I, I normally do, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course, you don't have any training at all in any of your mm-hmm. nursing classes on finance and accounting, and, and I think that often puts you at a disadvantage uh, when you're going into leadership roles, such as, uh, you know, administrators, even nurse managers uh, have. So it's going to be a great conference. Again, it's November 16th. And for more information, you can go to our uh, website at asc-central.com. Uh, we're going to talk about that new website in a minute, but it is asc-central.com. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a link to it in our, our podcast notes. And then on the next day, we're going to try to do this in the future, by the way, try to lump some okay. of our conferences together mm-hmm. so that uh, we might even be able to pack deal it or or just uh, it, it makes it easier for us to record them of course mm-hmm. uh, so the next day on this 17th we're going to do we're going to redo our conditions for coverage and interpretation uh, interpretive guidelines conference uh, we did that last I think sue in uh, 2021 I think so and, and we think it really needs to be updated yeah. and this is something that anybody in any role at the ASC I think could really right, benefit it, from exactly right from the very top from the governing body mm-hmm. uh, all the way down to uh, you know the the receptionist, because it really is important that everybody, uh, you know, there should be no secrets about what the regulatory environment Mm -hmm. is in an ASC. And not everybody will get the same amount of information out of it, but there certainly is a lot to learn from it. So uh, that uh, conference is on uh, on November 17th. And again, it's all day. uh, Both these conferences start at 8 a.m. and go right through 530. It's going to be a long day. And each of them will eventually get eight uh, AEU credit hours Mm -hmm. also. And as you mentioned, they're always going to be recorded, so you can either buy them afterwards or I think the best way to do it is really sign up if you can, attend it so you can ask any questions you want. And if you are pulled away inevitably throughout the day, you you know, when you get the recording, you can fill in those areas that you've missed. That's right. And of course, if you're a patron member of the podcast, uh, those uh, conferences are no cost to you. Just send me an email and uh, and request to be uh, invited to it. So again, patron members and members of our um, premium access program uh, get uh, admission to both of those conferences for free, but you do have to send an email. And there will be a, a communication sent out to all of our patron and, and premium access members. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about our new website, ASC Central. Uh, the address is asc-central.com. Uh, it's a work in progress, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to move all of our conference and for, uh, material links over uh, away from the ASC podcast website to ASC Central. It's been getting a little busy on the uh, the podcast website lately, and uh, we really wanted to find a way to kind of organize things a little bit differently. So I've owned the uh, ASC Central domain for well over ten years now, and really hadn't done much with it, but. We put this all, uh, put it all together. We're still working on it. And those of you that are patron members and premium access members know that the ASC-CentralWeb.com website is where uh, you access those benefits. 
And of course, uh, as we celebrate our 200th episode, we brought all of our staff together. We didn't do it because of the 200th episode, but we just happened to do our semi-annual retreat in September. And uh, we had all of our employees from Amateur Healthcare Strategies, uh, both uh, here in our home here in uh, Spenceport, New York, mm-hmm. uh, and virtually through our uh, teleconferencing capabilities. And at one point, we did uh, two uh, recordings. I think we limped, lumped them together, though, right, Sue? Uh, in the mm-hmm. in the uh, interviews here, uh, the first discussion was with all of the previous co-hosts of the podcast before Sue became full time. Uh, just kind of reminiscing about some of those early days, and then um, and then we had an ongoing discussion or a discussion with all the employees about uh, what's really going on right now. We do this after every one of our mm-hmm. retreats. What's what's going on in the ASC industry, and just observations from all the work that we do with our eighty plus clients throughout the country. And I think you got nostalgic about after talking about the earlier podcast because I saw you have an idea about doing a skit in one of the upcoming we, podcasts. We are, yes. <laughs> I think you must have missed that that dramatic aspect of it all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and it came from a survey. I was just on a survey uh, yesterday, and uh, the surveyor uh, uh, kind of pointed out that the organization really didn't do a, a complete timeout. Time out. Mm-hmm. And it dawned on me, and when I was recommending to the organization, you know, how to uh, your, your staff to do a proper timeout, I mm-hmm. said, why don't you just act it out? You know, and throw mm-hmm. some crazy ideas out there, things like that, just to kind of get everybody to, yeah. you know, to pay attention. So uh, we are going to do, uh, I don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we're going to do a skit for one of our podcasts coming up mm-hmm. to show you the perfect, we'll probably, knowing us, we'll probably do the worst timeout mm-hmm. ever. What and not then, to do. <laughs> what not to do. And then we'll do uh, one where uh, everything is perfect. So uh, stay tuned for that. And I saw something concerning with, you know, there, there's... So many problems with staff right now. Yeah. Now they um, are saying that Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers are possibly going on strike sometime. I believe that it would be before November because I think their current contract ends in October. Ends at the end of October. Oh, wow. okay. They're saying likely more than 75,000 workers might walk out for a three day period. They originally, I think they had said October 3rd to the seventh or something, but yeah. but they may be pushing it back. But they're alleging that there's um, have been unsafe staffing levels due in part to poor pay and benefits, um, despite the high profits that that the company is making. So yeah. I think it's what a lot of people are saying everywhere is you know the the staffing just isn't keeping up. People are getting burned out, and then the more burned out they get, the more people leave, and it's just you know it's, it's a never-ending cycle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we even saw it here in uh, we we live in uh, Spenceport, New York, which is just outside of Rochester, mm-hmm. and there was a a uh, situation where I believe they did go on strike for a, a few days. I think they right? did, yes. And then there yeah. was another situation we reported during the podcast in New York City uh, about a year ago. Uh, with one of the major systems there. So I think, uh, I, I don't know if this is escalating, but it certainly is a problem and it does seem to be mm-hmm. uh, centered around our, our our challenges right now with staffing. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that for you. Uh, we've had a lot of surveys recently. Um, you know, uh, as I mentioned, I had a issue with uh, one of our uh, most recent surveys where the mm-hmm. the, uh, the timeout wasn't perfect, but it, that was a wonderful experience. The, uh, the surveyor was fantastic. She was very educational. Uh, the organization's uh, director of nursing and the administrator are both brand new. Uh, so they uh, they had a lot of questions. They had a lot mm-hmm. of uh, uh, learning to do from uh, a surveyor. I mean, obviously, they can get stuff from uh, from us, but it's really good, you know, to be kind of under fire and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, get that, that one-on-one feedback from a surveyor doing a real live survey. Yes. Uh, so it was a very favorable experience to the uh, to the organization. They did very well. There was no condition level citations uh, and uh, they'll, uh, they'll have a nice report. 
uh, despite having a timeout that was less than perfect, let's put it that way. Yeah. Unfortunately, just before that, we had a, a really, unfortunately, unpleasant experience with this survey, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So uh, just kind of how to handle that situation. And while we're on the subject of surveys, a couple other things have been coming up recently, and that is th- there always has been a requirement for organizations that fall under the OSHA requirements uh, to have a chemical risk risk assessment. Um, and if you're not familiar with what a chemical risk assessment is, you might want to just Google it and see some examples of the forms that you would use for this. But basically, you're analyzing or identifying all the chemicals that you use in the organization and what you would do to protect your employees against any exposure to those chemicals. Uh, so this is a, a new line item in Triple C surveyors, which, surveys, which is why we're starting to see it pop up more. Uh, so in addition, all those other risk assessments that we're doing now, and we probably could do an entire podcast on risk assessments. I know we did um, we did talk about them during a previous podcast, mm-hmm. but it might be a good focus segment for us at some point. Yeah, delving into each one, yeah, what is required. Absolutely. So, uh, so definitely, if you have not done a chemical risk assessment, uh, learn about it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of resources available on the OSHA website, and there's some examples of risk assessments uh, just by googling it. And the second thing that uh, has popping up a lot lately is the inappropriate use of the term MAC or monitored anesthesia care. It, the, the term MAC is actually a billing term. It's not a, a. It doesn't identify a level of anesthesia, and it's no longer an acceptable term to be used in your uh, medical records or in your consent forms, for example. So uh, you need to start replacing that term monitored anesthesia care or MAC with the appropriate level of anesthesia, such as minimal, moderate, deep or or general anesthesia. Uh, and of course, as we've talked about before, you know, make sure that your anesthesia consent includes what level of anesthesia is anticipated. So look through all of your uh, your documents, especially your consents and your anesthesia forms, and make sure that you start to remove or, or do remove all of those references yeah. to MAC. And next week, I think 13 or 14 of us are heading off to the New York State Annual Conference. Yep. It's uh, it, it is the uh, largest conference that we all attend mainly because mm-hmm. we have so many clients in New York, and because since many of our employees are in New York, it's a lot easier for them to get to it. Mm-hmm. So all of our New York State clients will be uh, invited or have been invited to a special meeting there. We have a pre-conference which is put on by the ASC podcast, as well as the conference which continues Thursday and Friday of next week. Mm-hmm. So that's it's all very exciting. We're going to do a special episode, which will be kind of a large episode. We have yep. quite a number of interviews scheduled for that. Uh, so keep an eye out for that, uh, especially if you're from the state. In New York and a Sioux, as we all know, there's always uh, interviews that we get out of this that mm-hmm. we uh, we take to our national audience also. Yeah. So we're very excited about that. So let's go into some recent news. I saw a press release recently from the Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, Association. It was dated September 14th, 2023. And the day, the, the title was Costs for Common Healthcare Procedures Significantly Higher When Performed in Hospital Outpatient Departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll provide a link to the press release for this, but uh, uh, it noted a couple things that I think are very interesting to us because we, of course, mm-hmm. have been saying all along uh, that you know surgery centers, ASCs are much cheaper than hospital outpatient departments. But here is uh, the Blue Cross Association, Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, really giving some data, and this is what they said in that press release. And again, I'll provide a link to it. Mm-hmm. HOPDs can charge nearly sixty percent more for procedures than ASCs and doctors' offices, according to claims data analyzed by Blue. Health Intelligent Intelligence, which is a registered trademark of the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, Association, and the uh, the 
Senior Vice President of Policy and Advocacy, David Merritt, said – he's quoted as saying the following. The cost of a procedure shouldn't be determined by the setting where the care is delivered. Lowering the cost of care regardless of the site is common sense. Our analysis shows that site-neutral legislation would save our pa- patients, businesses, and taxpayers nearly $500 billion. It's half a trillion dollars, $500 billion over 10 years. And we look forward to continuing our work with Congress to protect patients from these higher costs. So in a previous episode, we did indeed talk about tra- price transparency. And I, I here's yet another article, another you know take on it recently. And Sue, why don't you mention some of the price? Price differences they noted. Okay, so the price differences noted in 2022 for common procedures um, based on setting where colonoscopy screening cost 32% more in an HOPD than in an ASC and double the cost compared to when they were performed in a doctor's office. Diagnostic colonoscopies cost 58% more in an HOPD than in an ASC and more than double the cost compared to when they were performed in a doctor's office. And cataract surgery cost 56% more in an HOPD than in an ASC, and ear tympanostomies cost 52% more in an HOPD than in an ASC. So that's pretty major. It is. And, and of course, we talked about there, there are reasons, and I, I mm-hmm. do understand and support uh, hospitals getting paid more, uh, which is not what, you know, the, uh, uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, organization is advocating here, or the American mm-hmm. Hospital Association, of course, is, is on the opposite side of this, saying that we should be paid, you know, this amount more. So this is going to be an interesting mm-hmm. battle as we, uh, as we move forward here. And as I mentioned, you know, previously, one of the concerns I have about this is that price differential uh, is our competitive advantage. If mm-hmm. indeed mm-hmm. Uh, all the prices are brought down to what we're reimbursed, uh, then indeed, um, you know, we don't have that advantage anymore. Everybody would be get paid the same amount. Yeah, but we would still have the advantage of, you know, people being more concerned about going to a hospital because yeah. of all the illnesses around there. And I think just more, um, more ease with scheduling and, you know, getting into a, a smaller place rather than having to walk through a big hospital to get stuff done. So well, I still think there's going to be advantages, but, you know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, well, when you mentioned ear tympanostomies, that that one struck mm-hmm. me because th- those are on little kids. You know, almost always mm-hmm. they're done on on uh, you know babies or toddlers. And uh, who wants to drag you know a toddler or a baby mm-hmm. into a hospital environment? You want to have a more home like environment where it's going to be far less scary. So we'll we'll keep an eye on what's going on with this whole topic of of price transparency. So, so there was an article in the Ophthalmology Times August 2023 uh, issue, uh, August 25th, 2023, by Michael Shumsky. I hope I pronounced that properly. Uh, he's an MD, MSE. Uh, and his, the title of it was, Is Office-Based Surgery a Harbinger of Things to Come for Ophthalmology? And I've been talking about this, actually. And by the way, there's a link to this in our show notes. But I've been talking about this recently, how I really do anticipate that Cataract surgery is eventually going to be moving to an office setting, into the office-based surgery setting. And uh, it was just interesting to see this article come out. And, and he concluded here, again, in, his, in this article in Ophthalmology Times, lens surgery can be formed just as safely in an OBS suite as in an ASC, according to the literature. Frankly, in my experience, he said, 
by granting more control over the entire surgical process, and OBS Suite makes it even safer. An added bonus to OBS is that it has been a practice builder. I can offer an elevated patient experience and have more OR time available to accommodate my schedule and growing practice. And then he went on to say, as far as reimbursement, though coding and billing are different from the process associated with an ASC reimbursement, uh, you know, the doctors are compensated at approximately the same rate. In other words, they don't get any additional reimbursement for doing mm-hmm. the procedure in their office. But reimbursement policies do vary depending upon where you're located. And some private insurers are starting to recognize OBSs and might be willing to reimburse an OBS for the technical or the facility component, even commercial carriers that offer uh, a Medicare Advantage program. But currently, Medicare only pays facility fees to an HOPD or an ASC. And remember that, uh, you know, cataract surgery is the most commonly performed ASC procedure for Medicare. And given the potential savings to the Medicare program, it really is likely that there will be a push to move these procedures to the OBS setting. I, you know, so I, I asked the question again here, you know, what does it mean for the future of ASCs that concentrate in ophthalmology? We really need as an industry to keep an eye on this and the potential competitive situation, uh, given that this is the most common procedure to move all of those procedures out of ASCs would uh, provide an opportunity, obviously, to do other procedures there, but it could have an impact on, on ASCs and perhaps may even result in the closure of many of the ASCs that are out there now. Mm-hmm. And of course, we also need to keep an eye on what insurance companies are going to do with regard to reimbursement. If they do, you know, provide uh, reimbursement for the physicians to do it in their office for some number lower than the technical component that is being paid to the ASC, that that would certainly uh, provide the incentive to the doctors to do it in their office as well as the uh, uh, savings to the Medicare program, uh, and, well, and even private insurers uh, for doing those procedures uh, outside of an ASC. So we got to keep a very close eye on that one as time goes on. And then I saw an excellent article in Outpatient Surgery Magazine in August, August 4th, 2023. And again, I'll provide a link to this. And this was entitled, The Essentials of Instrument Tray Management. And this was by Casey Zarnowski. Uh, She's a BA, CRCST, CSPDT, CISCER. Uh, Obviously, somebody that's very knowledgeable (laughs) about infection uh, control and uh, and and and, uh, and sterile processing, mm-hmm. uh, and I hope I didn't pronounce her name incorrectly. I'm sorry, Casey, if I did. Um, I'll provide a link to the article here, and and in this article, she asked the question: uh, How many of the instruments and entire instrument trays that arrive in your operating rooms and procedure rooms throughout the day are actually necessary? And she suggested that paring down your sets can save the center time, money, and resources while keeping surgeons satisfied and patients safe. Now, I don't have a lot of experience in this soup, mm-hmm. uh, but it does seem to me that I, I would bet that, you know, given we try to, we, the, all of this, the standardization we have might get to the point where we, we try to create trays uh, in the operating room that mm-hmm. meet everybody's requirements, yes. and then in the process, probably don't spend a lot of time looking at those things that are, you know, just like put in there once, you know, mm-hmm. in a blue room. And you're room, having to continually... Either reprocess them, and there's two. You're right, and there's two dangers to that. One Mm -hmm. is, first of all, your, you know, the the amount of time uh, the staff is taking, the amount of resources it's taking to uh, to re-sterilize that, as well as you know potentially uh, limiting the life of an instrument that you know is actually not used that frequently, Mm -hmm. and you're just constantly re-sterilizing it. 
So from the writer's perspective, here's what you need to do to, to better ensure you accomplish the mission of trying to uh, you know, improve the efficiency of your SPD department. And this is what they said. Achieve comprehensive buy-in beginning with SPD leaders, techs, and nurses. In other words, bring everybody together and say, this is something we want to do. We want to reduce the number of trays that are being brought in. And I think everybody in that process is going to be interested. Nurses don't want to be carrying any more trays or opening more trays and then closing those trays and then you know, moving those trays later than they absolutely have to. And of course, the SPD people don't want to have to do any more processing than, mm-hmm. than is required. And considering that this project is likely to take months or even a year, that it's cru- that's crucial for success to, to bring everybody together. Uh, you need to find one or two of your surgeons who will champion the project, uh, which can be very difficult, of course, because surgeons are creatures of habit and they want to have every base covered during the procedure. They're not going to want to take any risk that something they need is not going to be mm-hmm. in that, that precious tray. And then the next key to success is is to perform a pilot project with your surgeon champions. Don't try to do it with every surgeon all at once. Just try to find your, you know, start with those surgeon champions and start, you know, paring down what is being brought into the room. So she's suggesting the different surgeons have sort of like a preference list or for different procedures maybe and and just make sure you've – Right, I, I stick with what you think they'll need. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I think uh, there's always been uh, uh, a thought that I'm just going to throw everything into that tray that they could possibly mm-hmm. need. And maybe there, uh, you know, two things might happen. First of all, you're not always looking, you're not always revising those preference cards mm-hmm. on a frequent basis. Maybe it's been a preference card that's all yellow if it's actually paper uh, and they've, they've never changed it. And, and maybe that doctor just doesn't even use, you know, maybe even half of the instruments that come in that mm-hmm. tray that frequently. And I think another part of this is, well, let's let's pare it down to what's used in 90% of the procedures and yeah. maybe have another tray on standby that, you know, mm-hmm. can be brought in quickly if, yep, if you emergency. need something additional. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after you've done this, of course, consider how to roll it out to other doctors by showing the early successes with mm-hmm. that those surgeon yeah. champions. Probably much easier to get the rest of them to buy in once they start seeing that it's working. That's right. And that there's, you know, the doctor, the, 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 the champions are showing mm-hmm. that they, um, you know, that they could do it, that they they were not inconvenienced, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it was just an interesting perspective, and it might even save some space in the operating rooms, or for that matter, you know, the storage uh, of your uh, in your sterile processing. I did want to talk about a couple of recent experiences. We kind of alluded to this in the beginning of the uh, the episode, but we did have a survey experience that was uh, was not so great. Now, first of all, I didn't need to point out that there were no condition level citations. There really were no major uh, mm-hmm. findings during the survey. Uh, but unfortunately, there were two surveyors, and, and one in particular was uh, particularly rude and, and abrasive, and the other one I think was uncomfortable with the situation, um, but you know, but wasn't uh, any more. Um, con- Consultative. I mean, there was no consultation going on. There was no education going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were accreditation surveyors, so it's not like the state where, you know, I think it's more frequent that you do run into surveyors mm-hmm. that might be a little bit more, you know, matter of fact. Uh, but, you know, I'm, a, I'm an accreditation surveyor. We're taught right from the very beginning that we're there on, on a consultative basis. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, we have to identify problems. We have to cite s- situations that need to be, uh, you know, corrected. And we need to write a very comprehensive report that identifies what we found and what we we felt about the organization. But unfortunately, I, I don't find that there's ever a need to be rude and abrasive and, uh, you know, during a survey. And it was very disappointing, so much so that I had to report it to the accreditation organization. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, also during uh, this particular survey, um, uh, one of the surveyors actually uh, disclosed uh, – 
private information about one of the the health situations of one of the employees, mm-hmm. and that was that had to be reported uh, immediately. So um, you should never, I mean, surveyors should never be disclosing anything from a HIPAA standpoint. That yeah. you know, it's the same rules there as you have with the nurses. Of, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, your staff about anything else that's yeah. going on. So it was it was a very tough week for us because mm-hmm. we were very disappointed. We we really, I you know, I got to say, I don't think I've had an experience like that. Uh, in years. I mean, I've seen it before, you know, mm-hmm. and especially way back in my beginning part of my yeah. career. But uh, but there's so much effort being taken uh, now to uh, train surveyors to be consultative, to be educational, you know, to make the survey experience a real learning mm-hmm. experience for the organization. And nobody in that organization felt that they learned anything from that survey, which is very disappointing. And then I was not there. We, we as an organization decided to kind of stay away from this uh, because uh, we didn't want to add any fuel to the fire. Mm-hmm. So the exit conference was without us. And uh, during the exit conference, I, I asked, you know, the, uh, the the people that were at the exit conference, did they say anything nice about the organization? Mm-hmm. And, and that was really disappointing. They actually said nothing nice mm-hmm. about the organization at all. Yeah. And, and again, again it, it was a, it's a good center. It's actually and, one you know, of our better centers here in yeah. terms of its compliance. Yeah. The organization has top-notch leadership. There were no... Uh, major citations out there. They were just very rude and and very. Um, they were identifying things that were not really standards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think any you know nobody expects people to overlook things that are problems, but there's a way of conveying it yeah. and trying to improve the care, you know, without being rude. And and that really wasn't even the case here. They were just just really being very abrasive and and yeah yeah. I, I don't know. What was going on there, but it wasn't maybe, helpful at all. Right. Maybe they were just having a bad week. I, I don't yeah. know. And I did want to mention um, one example uh, during the survey. The surveyors were looking at the drills, and they, they noted that the drills had a list of all the attendees that was typed mm-hmm. into the report. Uh, and the surveyors came back and said, oh, no, you can't do that. You have to have the signatures of the attendees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the, the organization said, well, you know, the, I, I don't see that. I, I, I did not know that. Uh, and now, at, at this point, Sue, they were so gun-shy, I think, yeah. that they uh, they did not want to really confront them. And that might have been mm-hmm. the appropriate way. But mm-hmm. my, my feeling when something like that happens is you go back to them and you say, um, you know, you just kindly ask them if they can show you in the standard that that would be the requirement. And trust me, there is no standard that requires to have a signature of the mm-hmm. attendees there. Mm-hmm. And again, um, you just you say it kindly. You could say, you know, so that I can use this in my re-education of staff. Right. Just let me see the standard. And and always remember, if you know, if that doesn't work, that no matter what they say, if they go back to write the report and there isn't a standard for it, you likely won't get cited because you'll have yeah. nothing to back it up. We, we don't have the results of the survey yet, and I suspect a lot of the those things, there were mm-hmm. actually quite a number of situations yeah. very similar to that, um, that, um, you know, that I, I doubt very much will show up in the, in the mm-hmm. actual report because the um, the review, you know, uh, function within that accreditation organization mm-hmm. won't allow it to get yeah. through. So you don't have to. There's never you never really want to argue. That that's true. You know, so let's just talk a little bit about what you really want to do when you're dealing with a difficult surveyor. First of all, you know, don't return their rudeness with uh, with rudeness. Be nice. You know, consoling to them. You know, thank them for their uh, feedback and uh, and recognize that when the survey comes back, if you can't convince them that mm-hmm. um, you know that uh, indeed you were meeting the standards, or if you were 
if you find yourself in a situation where you're arguing with them as to what the standard is, uh, the best thing to do is actually wait for the survey report to come out. First of all, to see if it actually shows up in the survey mm-hmm. report. And then if it does, then you can you can argue it at that point mm-hmm. and just point out that, you know, where you yeah. were correct. And uh, the report the will have the standard you know, will, cited right. there. So it, it has to be a standard or they really can't They They it. shouldn't cite it. Right. Yes. That's correct. And then lastly, I just want to make sure that you you take the opportunity to evaluate the the uh, the surveyors and the survey organization there mm-hmm. by providing feedback. Um, and if there's a serious violation like this HIPAA violation, report it immediately to the accrediting organization so mm-hmm. that they can take appropriate action as quickly as they can. But you know, we I'll say I, I haven't had uh, an evaluation. I've been working as an accrediting uh, as a uh, surveyor for. Uh, you know, about 23 years, and I haven't mm-hmm. had a survey performed on me or, you know, feedback for me for over three years. Now, I'm thinking it's because I haven't really gotten anybody angry mm-hmm. uh, during a survey, but uh, who knows? But yeah. on the other side, I'd like to have some positive and, you know, I'd like to have some, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. some uh, some comments or some suggestions as to how I can be a better surveyor. I bet people are a little nervous, too, though, because they're afraid if they say anything wrong, then the next time a surveyor comes out, but I, I don't think that's the case. No, though. and they're not allowed to, uh, you know, to, to have a connection between that. Uh, mm-hmm. That being said, though, you know, accrediting organizations do know that if you, you know, if if there was a bad survey and mm-hmm. you know the organization complains, then yeah. there's probably a reason that they complained about that. And mm-hmm. and I've seen that in my my career where you know, um, you know, or, uh, surveyors have been hammered by the organization, and and it turned out because they were doing their that's job, the they were identifying things that needed mm-hmm. to be fixed, uh, and the organization was angry that you know they were doing that. But mm-hmm. that's certainly not the situation here. So I hope this never happens to you. But uh, you know, sir, every survey is different. Every surveyor. Uh, it comes from a different, uh, you know, uh, a place, and uh, you just never know what you're going to run into. I think it's much more likely you're going to run into a rude surveyor or a difficult surveyor uh, during a state survey. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this was very surprising to me to see it in uh, in one of the accreditation organizations. I did also want to mention during our Saturday patron uh, drop-in session this last Saturday, there was a discussion about HMPs, and we're going to have a very extensive conversation about this uh, uh, in the future. But we know that um, you know the HMP conditions for coverage and interpreted guidelines have changed. Now, fortunately, there has not been a mad rush to eliminate HMPs, uh, and nor should you, because they're, you know the uh, the interpreted guidelines are very specific about what you need to do uh, in order to change that 30-day rule that had been in place for a long time. Uh, but the situation that we ran into during the Saturday drop-in, or the question was asked is, uh, the HMP had been done in the office by a nurse practitioner uh, prior to the date of surgery, and it was within 30 days. And on the day of surgery, the doctor didn't want to do the update prior to the patient rolling into the operating room. In other words, he was he was just kind of looking at the patient when the patient came in and then just signing off saying that he had done an update. Uh, but he really didn't do an update. And, of course, it's too late to do a history and physical when that patient is in the operating room because at that point you're ready to start doing things. So if you're, you know, that update needs to be done, you know, by a physician um, uh, prior to them going into the operating room and it needs to be documented as such. Make sure that that uh, history and physical is done within 30 days and includes a complete ROS or uh, review of systems. Uh, And then on the day of surgery, it's updated, which would also include all of those systems, too, and a heart and lung evaluation. And as I said, we'll we'll have a much uh, more uh, comprehensive discussion about this in the future because I know this is going to be a very hot topic. 
So, Sue, as we discussed earlier, we had a, a retreat in September, the beginning of September, uh, for all of our staff from Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We also brought together some of the staff from, well, all of the staff from uh, the ASC podcast with mm-hmm. John Gailey. And uh, we sat around a table. Now, the, the uh, recording that you're going to hear isn't perfect. It, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, is in our big studio and, and also remotely with all of the people that were joining from, uh, from their other locations. But uh, I think you can hear pretty well the discussion. And, and again, there was a good... Um, uh, conversation about the early years of the podcast. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have this uh, interview with the uh, staff of the ASC podcast and our previous co-hosts, as well as the staff of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. As a leader in the ambulatory surgery industry, you already know that the ASC podcast with John Gailey is your ultimate free resource for staying updated with the latest news and information while ensuring your organization maintains regulatory and accreditation compliance. But did you know that we have two membership programs on our partner website, ASC Central, that can take your organization to the next level? For just $25 a month, our patron program will unlock a host of amazing benefits. Enjoy regular Zoom meetings with our hosts and special guests, access to recorded conferences like our credentialing seminar, conditions for coverage conference, medical director conference, and our most recent two-day multi-state conference. The patron program also offers a comprehensive database of policies, forms, drills, example minutes, and other invaluable resources to optimize your center's operations. For those centers that want even more, our new ASC Central Premium Access Plan offers a variety of online services to its members. The benefits include access to a wide range of services, including all of the benefits of the patron program, unlimited access to our popular boot camps, the ASC industry's most comprehensive training for ASC leadership. Members can attend any number of the ASC Administrator Boot Camps and ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camps and can listen to the recordings throughout their membership. It also includes unlimited access to the industry's most comprehensive infection control training designed for infection control coordinators and those that wish to take the Certified Ambulatory Surgery Center Infection Preventionist exam. And the program also includes up to five hours of private consultations by Zoom. For more information about these two programs, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com or click on the links in the show notes. So I'm here at the uh, fall 2023. I don't. I, I really shouldn't be calling this fall 2023 because it is in uh, September. It's still technically summer, uh, but it's our uh, ambulatory healthcare strategies retreat, and we're reflecting on the the past six years of the ASC podcast with John Gailey. Um, we are of course celebrating our 200th anniversary with this episode, and I thought we would uh, invite back some of the uh, the people that were very instrumental in the very beginning of the podcast, just talk a little bit about that history. Uh, so I have with me Judy D'Ambrosio, who was our first co-host. Uh, say something, Judy, just so I can make sure your microphone's working there. Did we do this already? We did, but I did. <laughs> I, I want to make sure, because you just aimed your microphone away from you yet again. I so. tend to do that. I no, know. I'm back. I'm here I'm to back. do it again just once. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Judy was the, uh, by, by the way, I had to go back through the history to find out all these dates. So you were the, the co-host uh, from January through approximately April of 2020, uh, 2018. 
2018. And then I also have with me Jenna Alvarez, uh, who was not the official co-host, but she was involved in the first four or five months of the podcast, mainly uh, because she was living uh, with us as she was uh, looking for a house. Uh, well, looking for an apartment at that point and then looking for a house later. So she was actually living in uh, what is now Studio Two and, and uh, Studio One uh, in the house here. So uh, she was easy. She was an easy target to uh, pull upstairs and uh, and do our, our weekly podcast. So say hi, Jenna. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and then also with me is Sue Cronkite, who became the co-host in about it was somewhere around May or June of 2018. Uh, and then, of course, she has been the co-host since then. Say hi. <laughs> hi <everybody>. <laughs> <laughs> Sue and I are sharing a microphone. And, uh, I, you know, I so, uh, let's just go through a little bit of history here. I'll remind people of this because it is kind of interesting. So, uh, so Jenna, uh, you are the reason this podcast exists because Jenna and I were doing some work in uh, outside of Boston. Jenna was bored in the car. But Jenna was bored in the car <laughs> and uh, she was driving back. With me, and she said, "Can I listen to a podcast?" I said, what, "What's a podcast?" I, okay, I really don't care. Just listen to whatever you want. And Jen, do you remember the podcast you were listening to? It probably doesn't really matter, but I don't know. Back then, it might have like the, all of the like the stuff you should know or stuff you learned missed yeah. in history class. In history. And I, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I asked Jenna, "What what is a podcast?" <laughs> and you know, what how does this work? And and she said, well, you know, there's podcasts that have like three people that listen to it and podcasts that have 3,000 people. And yeah. bells started going off. And I'm thinking to myself, I always wanted to be a radio host. I'm kidding. But, you know, but but the thought was there that, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe we should, you know, talk a little bit about what amateur surgery centers do. We know that we can't have a weekly radio program because, you know, there aren't that many surgery centers out there to, to justify it. And that was the genesis. So you're to blame for the existence of the podcast. And I, I thank you for that. Started a whole trend in the industry. You did. <laughs> and of course, we are. The, there have been other podcasts that have come and gone uh, over time. And we are the longest running podcast, of course, out there. And we're very proud of that. And we now celebrate our, our 200th anniversary. So I want to take you back back uh my my friends here to those early days remember um so um it's funny judy i listened this morning to the first episode and uh talk a little bit about you know what it was like then and the microphones and all that the, the, the idea the, that either of us had any idea what no. we were doing didn't know how the microphone worked really didn't know if we were recording or not wasn't there a skit involved? Um, yeah, it was we a thought skit. that we had to be entertaining. So, like, we wrote scripts for what to say and little skits. It was, it was, um, uh, but we thought we rocked. Yeah, um, we thought we were awesome, but it was awful. It was awful. But well, go back I, if you're a listener, go on back to one and, and laugh. Well, and and so I'm listening to this and I say, boy, Judy sounds really good. You know, the microphone, because I knew at the time that I had bought these uh, microphones off the Internet for $35. I mean, which is a lot of money for a microphone, by, by the way, back in, in 2018. And I'm thinking, you know, this is a fancy microphone. It plugs into your USB port. This is going to be fantastic. I plug these things in. You know, it, I don't know. We spent hours getting them to work. And I'm listening to this first podcast and you sounded great. You could barely hear me on my microphone. You know, so whatever we had done, you had gotten the better microphone because we had different microphones that were yes, playing around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's how we started. We we started doing the podcast in the dining room upstairs. upstairs. We're now in Studio 2 downstairs. And uh, we did in the dining room. I'd have to set up all of the microphones, all of the stands. Um, and, you know, it, it it when I think about it, it wasn't a lot of money. 
I mean, it seemed like a lot of money at the time. Uh, and by the way, we're actually in Studio Two right now. Uh, we're using the boom microphones um, on our our tables here that uh, we used in the very beginning. But we'd have to set them up every single day. Um, the boom microphone that I have in front of me, Judy's looking around, uh, okay, saying, "What the heck are you talking?" None of these are familiar, but you're right. Okay, but those are thirty-nine mic- dollar microphones. Today, uh, the studio we're actually not in the main studio right now. We're in Studio Two, but those those microphones that we're using in the main studio now cost six hundred dollars each. Oh my! And uh, you know, and oh. I mean, you can tell the difference, you know, with them. But what boy, have we come a long way? <laughs> um, so it, you know, it has truly been a pleasure doing this. But in the beginning, as you said, Judy, we had a lot of fun. I mean, we did the skits. And, you know, some of them were pretty corny. I mean, they, oh they goodness, definitely are corny. Yes. Uh, and we didn't quite figure out the whole thing that, you know, we we were, we started. What, and as a matter of fact, when I was listening to it, um, you and I discussed what our goals were. You know, and it's interesting that it's pretty much the same things today, you know, that we wanted to educate people on, on compliance and being ready for surveys, uh, answer questions. Because we thought at that time people would be sending all kinds of questions. So here's a little secret. Um, how many questions did we receive in the first three months? I don't think anybody sent us. No, nobody sent us questions. But how many questions did we answer live on the po- on the podcast? You might remember you wrote the questions. Oh, yeah, we we created <laughs> questions. Yeah, well, <laughs> and we, we pretended talking- they came from our listeners. <laughs> I think they came from our clients. They came from our clients. Yeah, yeah. They just didn't know that they were going to be used yeah, on a podcast. <laughs> did you just pretend that we got them. Like we did. Yeah, we have six <laughs> questions today. As if they we won't be able to answer two. Yeah. <laughs> But that's the way it was in the beginning. Uh, a little bit also is that uh, the official date uh, was uh, January 1st of 2018. So the first episode was dated January 1st, 18. It was actually published in March because the professionals that tell you how to do podcasts said, what you need to do is you need to have like three months of podcasts in the can before you start publishing. I don't remember, you know, we used a, a media consultant at the time and and said, you want to, you know, you, you, you want to come out. You don't want to just have the only podcast you know, episode out there. You want to like show that. I have a couple. Yeah. Right. You know, you're a real, you know, player in the, in the, in the, uh, in the podcast industry. So, you know, we did that, you know, we published, uh, I think about six or seven at the same time uh, in March of 2020, uh, 2018. And here we are uh, five and a half years later. And then, you know, uh, we had a retreat in June of 2018, at which point we decided that it was becoming difficult for amateur healthcare strategies to provide the resources for the podcast. And at that point, we separated amateur healthcare strategies and uh, the podcast itself. So they're, you know, the two separate entities, they have de- separate staff. Uh, we continue to be a sponsor of the podcast at that point. And, and of course, that's the way we've been, you know, for the, the five years since then. Then 2019 came. And uh, Jenna had moved out. Uh, she had gotten her own apartment at that point. Her sister had moved in uh, between that time frame. And then she moved out in November of 2019. And we built the new studio, which was in uh, the, what would have been your bedroom uh, down in the uh, in-law apartment down here. And turned it into, you know, we, we, we bought some used computers, some, uh, you know, relatively inexpensive microphones, set it up as an audio studio, bought a lot of, you know, used uh, uh, audio equipment and set this up and, and and started recording down there. And it worked very well uh, for a while. Uh, but keep in mind, this was in November of 2019. And then comes March of 2020. Mm. Suddenly, the whole world changed, as we all know, and there was this huge demand. We, um, in the space of a short period of time, Jenny, you remember this? There's, there's, there's actually a couple of videos that we posted on YouTube at the time, where we, uh, we went live. We learned how to go live 
uh, on YouTube. We went and learned how to go live with the podcast and we published, uh, you know, over a period of about three months, we were going, you know, sometimes two to three times a week, uh, sometimes live, sometimes recorded uh, doing the podcast. And that's when our listenership, you know, really moved up dramatically. And it was quite a, a quite an exciting time. But, I, you know, if you have a chance, go to YouTube and watch the video of us getting ready in the second week of March to do a live podcast because we recorded it. We didn't do any editing or anything like that. And you can see Jen and myself and Sue. And I, I can't remember who else was in that video. Like March was like, it was the Friday, right? When like everything, yeah, I think everything shut down after that. That's right. Exactly. And we were all trying to figure out what to do. And and it's funny because I'm watching and I'm thinking, I mean, I was curious. I think about this because we, we didn't know what was happening at that time, but we were all scared. I mean, it was visible in this video what was happening. And, you know, if you look at it in perspective of today, and then you listen to the conversation about, well, we don't know what's going to happen, you know, um, it, it's an interesting history lesson to go back and look at that. Um, as you can tell, I'm, I'm kind of teary eyed, you know, I mean, you know, to reflect on, you know, the last five and a half years, it is very nostalgic here. So what happened is then, then we all discovered Zoom. And we converted the studio. That was the first of uh, many revisions to the studio. Since then, we uh, we uh, got rid of all of our Windows computers, bought you know Macintoshes, used Macintoshes. Uh, we upgraded and included new uh, microphones um, and uh, you know relatively inexpensive uh, video equipment. And and that and the rest is history. Really, over that time, we've we've renovated the studio approximately three times. Matter of fact, we're not in the studio right now because. Uh, the studio is going through uh, an, yet another upgrade as we uh, we move to an even higher level of equipment. By the way, the equipment that we're putting into it, uh, Judy, you'll appreciate. We're actually using movie quality recording equipment, so we can we can actually create a you know a, a full a full blown you know two hour movie if we want. Excited when we start. <laughs> exactly. So here we are in and and uh, you know with our our 200th episode over five and a half years. Here's some statistics that you might find interesting. We've had 54,000 downloads, 219 current followers. Doesn't really mean much because most of our listeners actually don't hit that subscribe button. Please hit that subscribe button. It helps us. Um, we have between 500 and 1,000 downloads per month, depending upon how many episodes we publish that month. And that number is important to understand. When you consider that there are 6,000 surgery centers in the country, you know, that's more than 10% of the population is listening to us on a regular basis every month. Uh, we also know that our listeners generally do not, um, you know, we might have 100 listeners within the first week or two of the episode. So, so many of you apparently have other things to do with your time, and sometimes you do not listen to us right away. But we do find that over time, you uh, eventually, uh, you know, do tune in. So that's how we end up with that, you know, that close to 400, 500 episodes. We are still shocked. You know, I, I still go around to, to conferences, and I'm still shocked when I have to hand out a card and tell people, you know, about the podcast and, and about the existence. There are still people out there uh, that don't know and, and or don't understand that this is a free resource that we offer. Uh, but we love listening to our our listeners. We love uh, meeting them during these things. I know Judy, you you still talk about how people come up. I recognize your voice. Wait, wait. You were there in the beginning. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And of course, Sue. Now uh, her her voice is you know. <laughs> so I, I do have to say something as I'm sitting next to Sue here. I'm going to embarrass her for a second. We all know Sue. She's an introvert. If you don't know that, you you can't tell that by listening to her. But she Sue's an introvert. You know, she does not uh, generally like to talk. As a matter of fact, she's. 
not talking right now, and I'll be um, sleeping on a couch tonight, but um, just by putting her through this, but, you know, it, she's done an incredible job as the co-host and has really, you know, been been able, you know, she does a lot of our research, if not most of our research, really for the news on a regular basis. And I just want to thank you for taking on that, you know, very uh, difficult job of keeping me in line. And she does all the editing too. Yes, the editing is a big thing. And <laughs> I'll never give that up because then I can cut out all the things that I say that I think, why did I say that? That didn't make sense. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I do want to thank, you know, thank Jenna and uh, Judy and of course, Sue for all of the incredible work that you've done to get us to this point today. And then I would just like to say that, you know, keep in mind that we do have the patron member program. We currently have approximately 250 patron members. Um, and, you know, that number does continue to grow. Uh, it is uh, in $25 a month for access to a weekly drop-in session where we uh, we give you an opportunity, usually weekly, it's not every week. Uh, we give you an opportunity to kind of join us by Zoom and ask whatever questions. It's becoming, it's becoming a self-help group, isn't it, uh, uh, Lori? And uh, Lori's with us here, uh, who's one of our regular uh, surveyors that show up on that that weekly session. So do consider becoming a patron member to help support the podcast. You have access to us. Uh, you have access to the weekly drop-in sessions on Zoom. You have access to a very large database. And well, starting in, in uh, February, we introduced what's called the Premium Access Program, which provides access not only to all the resources that you have as a patron, but also uh, unlimited access to many of our educational programs, including our Director of Nursing and Administrators Bootcamp. For more information about that, visit asc-central.com. So we are here with the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies team for our fall 2023 uh, retreat. Uh, it's here in Spenceport, New York, and uh, we have uh, our largest crowd yet and uh, well, our newest member, Christina Norman. Um, wait, waving is not going to do any good, uh, Christina. <laughs> Uh, so just just say uh, hi to our, our crowd here. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Christine has actually been interviewed, you know, on the podcast over time, and she has been a longtime listener and a very good friend, a very good friend of ours. She knows everybody on the team, and we're so glad to have you on board. I, what week are you on now with Ambitory? Um, I'm almost to my second month. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Heavens. I, I, I was thinking three or four weeks. <laughs> You've dealt with me for that long. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, now, uh, just to remind our listeners, we do uh, get together on a semi-annual basis. We're a little bit behind right now, uh, you know, as, as a retreat. Twice a year, we do a retreat uh, to talk about things that are going on um, in our company, you know, in the industry, and to set goals and objectives for the organization over the next, um, you know, six months or you know, actually into the future. So I have everybody here. We have live microphones around, so you're going to hear coughs. You're going to hear, you know bumps and things like that. Our equipment is a little bit better right now. I do, please, I, I know you you love turning your microphones away from each other, but, um, you know, for our listeners' sake, please do aim the microphones toward you when I ask you a question. What I wanted to do is I wanted to talk through some of the big issues that we talked about here uh, during our three-day retreat, um, because each of them, we've chosen these topics because they have been things that we are noticing with our clients as major issues, and we know that they are uh, industry uh, issue also. And we're going to start with the whole issue of education. Um, so, uh, you know, we know that right now, you know, education is an extremely important part. We have, we're hiring a lot of people that are not necessarily well uh, trained in amateur surgery centers. We used to, you know, it used to be the day so, Lori, you and I have been in the industry longer than we care to admit, but but in the beginning, we just could not hire staff members that really didn't have experience, right? You're not going to hire somebody fresh out of college. You were getting people from, you know, the hospitals in particular, because there's really no, no other place that they would, would come to you. But do we have that luxury anymore? 
Oh, no, no, yeah. definitely not. It's that's long gone. Right. Uh, that's why you have to be very diligent with the staff that you have so that they become the teachers. Right. And and that gets to the point that we're having here now is that, you know, sometimes we we don't take our education program seriously. I'm going to look at uh, uh, Judy, who is, uh, you know, has been our director of educational services for a while. Um, and uh, she's kind of, kind of actually moving out of that. We're going to talk about that in a, in, in a bit with uh, her, her movement into the medical records area. Um, but, you know, Judy, you developed a lot of our educational programs over the last about eight years now, I think. Yeah. And uh, you make that expectation that uh, people are actually listening to them. But what if, what is one of the things that we have learned, unfortunately, over time? Well, I'll tell you that I very much more enjoyed being in person and talking to yeah. a room full of people than I did making binders and sending them out. And then I thought, well, maybe we can, you know, meet halfway and I'll record it. No, yeah. none of it is the same as, as, as in person. Um, in person. But I think COVID really put the kibosh on that for everybody. You yeah. know, we just don't travel. We don't do this. Um, so we've struggled, I think. I feel yeah. as if we've struggled um, to make a product that did the job. Yeah. But did it a little better than anybody else did the job, which is always our mm-hmm. expectation that we're going to be just a little better than everybody else. So it, it really has been a struggle to make this product what I think you, John, mm-hmm. and I want it to be. Um, and then we're finding that nothing is going to be like it used to be, you know, where I would go and sit and I'd have 35, 40 people in a room and get their questions right then. Yeah. And be able to clarify to the, you know, the quizzical look on the face of the person in the third row that you can see because you're there. Um, and that just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, and I think uh, we we also know that there are uh, online educational programs out there that provide generic training, and and some surgery centers say, oh, you know, they go to a surveyor and say, hey, you know, uh, don't worry, we have all this training, everybody does it online, and some surveyors look at it and say that's great, but but what's the problem with that? Well, because it's exactly what you said it was generic. Right. It's not going to walk you through your emergency preparedness plan. It's not going to talk you through your quality improvement plan. And it's fine. I mean, I'm not, it's, it's a product, you know, mm-hmm. available and used quite a little bit, but you know, generic, you get exactly what you're paying for with yeah. that. You know, you, you get exactly out of it, what you put into it. So, so Jenna, I'm looking at you now because we, we know that one of the challenges that we have with education is that so many of our, first of all, there's so much pressure for our staff, you know, for the staff in the surgery centers to get out there and get to work. You know, you, you hire somebody on Monday, right? You you hire them on Monday and you want them working on Tuesday. Um, and and they, they maybe they work for five years, maybe they work for 20 years in a surgery center and you just say, you know something, they really don't need to go through this training program. Um, but we know we have a problem. Jenna, you have a story, don't you? Yep. Um, we had a center that we helped uh, reopen recently and they hired a whole new staff. We rushed to get them a beautiful policy manual, beautiful education program. Thank you, Judy. Uh, <laughs> got it all in place. And uh surveyor showed up unexpectedly early after yeah. they had reopened and looked at all the education and said, this education looks great. We love it. None of the staff knows anything about the emergency preparedness plan. Yeah. And we're citing you for not properly training your staff for so we had all the documentation that they had done the education but it was clear upon interviewing the staff that they they had not actually done done the education and and to that point i'm looking again at Lori because when we go in and we talk to to people there it becomes apparent you know we do look at the educational program we look at the the sign-offs they have but how apparent is it 
when you get in there that they may not have actually done the training or done the specific training for that surgery center. Yeah, no, it's extremely evident, you know, whether it's something like the emergency preparedness or sharp safety, mm-hmm. or which is universal. Right. And if it's still not being complied with or medication safety or infection control, you know, or documentation, we, we see it all the time. Yeah. And and you have to, so you can use these online educational programs, that's acceptable. But more importantly, I think I, I've estimated that's about a third, maybe, of the total education an organization has to have. You're going to have to train them on infection control, example, Lori. You're going to have to and, and train them on peer review. You're going to have to train them on disaster, as Jenna was talking about, the disaster preparedness, the fire safety, because, you know, no organization that, you know, lives up in the cloud is going to be able to tell you where the exits, where the air, I was going to say air where the uh, fire extinguishers are uh, in your organization. You need to train them specifically. And we as surveyors, Lori and I, myself, are, are going to be walking around and asking questions of your staff. And if we get an answer that runs contrary, the next question we're going to ask is, you know, do you remember your training program? Tell me a little bit about it. And and to your point, Jenna, if the, they come back and, you know, it's apparent that they signed off on it, but they actually didn't pay attention to it you're going to run into a problem. So the big takeaway on, on the education side is it is important that you you take education seriously. Your sur- and it's not just because you want to pass a survey, right? And we actually spent quite a bit of time as a team here talking about it. It's not just because of that. It's the right thing to do. You want to have people prepared. Uh, you want to be able to be prepared to handle an emergency. God forbid something happens. Um, you don't want them do- working off of you know generic training. You want them to know exactly what they, uh, they need to do. Uh, uh, to, to get into. So, you know, make sure your, your programs are well-written, make sure that they're specific to your organization, make sure that they are delivered in such a way that you can get feedback from them to determine whether it was done appropriately and uh, be prepared for surveyors to ask those questions and be able to answer them. And when you find that your training has missed its target, when maybe you have an incident that occurs, um, you're you're going to want to uh, you know make sure you do the retraining at the proper time. I'm, I I don't have this in the script here, but I'm looking at uh, Christina for a second. Christina is is the one that's most recently come out of administration, and uh, you know Christina, I you know I just want to finish by I'm sure you have stories about reeducation that you've had to do over time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the most recent challenges that you've had where you've had to do like in services in order to get people ready? Yeah, I think it goes back to, you know, onboarding staff that hasn't necessarily worked in an ASC before. Yeah. Um, having to change their mindset from hospital thinking to surgery center thinking. Yeah. And I think it's really important that when you have incidences such as, you know, codes or anything like that, yeah. that you go back and you do a lot of retraining and rethinking with your staff. Like, what situations led up to that incident happening? What could we have done differently? Right. Um, and not necessarily only do that when those incidents occur, but it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. Not just an annual thing. It should be a monthly thing. Right. Uh, and by the way, I'm listening to you, um, Christina, you've done some public speaking. Can I ask the rest of the crowd here? Uh, do we have a good speaker here? I mean, she had no idea what question I was going to ask her. And was she able to answer that question? Well, <laughs> so I, I think she's ready. <laughs> good job. Good job. See, now, now I've got everybody else in the room scared because they don't know if I'm going to ask them some uh, oddball question. Next thing I want to talk about, um, which is uh, an ongoing and increasing problem, and that is the responsible adult. Um, who wants to kind of paraphrase the description of a responsible adult and where that falls in? I volunteer Donna. Okay. <laughs> so every patient who is who is discharged from an ASC 
um, who has had anesthesia of any type needs to be uh, escorted home by a responsible adult, meaning somebody 18 years or older who is able to make sure the patient gets home safely and stay with them or be available for them for at least the next 24 hours. Um, I think that there are people who show up and say they have an escort home and they don't. And then there are people who show up with their 16-year-old child who has a driver's permit and they say, you know, my daughter's going to drive me home and she is not a responsible adult. And that creates quite a bit of chaos for the ASC and a problem for the patient because without that escort, they technically really cannot have their procedure done. That's right. And and there's been a lot of talk on the, uh, the various... Uh... Uh, channels out there, you know, these question and answer uh, channels out there that that have been, uh, you know, talking about this because I, I, I mean, this is a problem that predates COVID. I don't think COVID actually uh, has had a huge impact on it. But what we find, especially in many of our urban areas, is that people might not necessarily have an escort available uh, to them. They might not, you know, they might live alone and they don't have anybody to take care of. Now, um, and and the doctors inevitably say, I've got to take care of this patient. You know, I mean, we understand that. We do understand that, you know, that they need to have the procedure done, but we have to do it safely. So I'm going to look at you for a second, Laurie, on this one, because, you know, let's just talk about the patient safety issue, because you've had some very, you know, you, you've run into this as a surveyor. Uh, and so I, I want you to describe one of those incidents where, you know, the, the, the doctors allowed that patient to leave without, uh, you know, a proper escort, and, and it could have been an, a bad situation. Uh, well, you can be sitting, I was sitting in a lobby waiting to go into the administrator's office. So I was in the waiting room of the facility and the facility had a, a lovely glass wall that led out into the hallway of the building with the elevator. And I watched this woman stagger in that lobby area and actually go into the glass wall and then go back towards the elevator and trying to stabilize herself against the wall with one hand, pressing the button to leave. And she was a post-op patient. And that to me is very unsafe. Um, and a similar thing, a, I was in the PACU area and I watched a patient get up from her bay and walk out of the center to, to a hallway to leave without a, a staff member in right. attendance. Now that happened to be a mock survey. What would you have done if you were uh, actually, well, I mean, you 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 can't call an immediate jeopardy on a mock survey, but if you had witnessed that as a surveyor. If I witnessed that as a surveyor, I probably would call my lead team right. and describe what I saw and get direction from them because I really felt that that patient was not safe. And not knowing what's going to happen. And was she going downstairs to go into the street? Did she have a ride downstairs? And this was pre-COVID, I believe. So it was, you know, there was plenty of people in the, you know, or even if it was COVID, you don't let a patient go downstairs, you know, in a multi-level building unattended, assuming that the ride is down there just because they said they were on a phone. Right. You know, because you're you're responsible when you're releasing that patient. It's kind of like the bartender. Last one that serves that drink, even if they only had one drink at your yeah. bar, but they had 12 before they got there, that last bartender is liable. Mm -hmm. You know, so you need to think about the safety of the patient and the safety of the facility as well. 
So I'm going to ask Kathy Foti actually to step in for a second here and and talk a little. So so we know one of the first things, Kathy, is isn't it true that the first thing the doctors say when when the, no, there's no escort that says, well, there's a provision in the uh, the conditions for coverage that a doctor can exempt uh, a patient from it, right? So they you you run into this a lot. So that so what happens and describe what the problem is with that. Well, my experience has been that um, doctors do try to find the loopholes in things. Um, And in this particular case, um, a lot of it stems, I'll take, for example, a lot of my clients are are eye clients. We have a lot of um, clinics out there that are eye clients. Um, So you're looking at an aged population that has issues already. So when the doctor says, well, well, we can, you know, we can exempt them. We can, you know, they don't have any relatives. They don't have friends. Uh, they're going to take a medical Uber. So the medical Uber will take care of them. That doesn't meet the requirements. You can't just automatically exempt, especially before the patient is even in your center. Yeah. Um, so that, yes, um, is CMS a little bit. Um, Vague, yes, they're vague, but we have to, we, meaning ASCs, have to really, again, falling back to Lori, we have to protect those patients. And there have been incidences where these patients go home, whether they've had, they're on crutches, whether they, you know, have a bandage eye, whether they've had a block of some sort uh, with a medical Uber, but that medical Uber is only good to drive up to the driveway. And there right. have been incidences where these patients go into their house, fall, um, you know, injure themselves, have to be um, transported to a hospital. Again, going back, it's going to lead your center to having risks. You know, you're you're putting your your center's risk. It, it's just going to bring it up. That's right. Um, Donna, you've had some situations recently where the doctors have wanted uh, to actually to get to Kathy's point. They wanted to exempt people automatically or one of the most ridiculous situations I think we saw. They they were having the patient sign an AMA against medical advice before the procedure occurred, knowing that the that patient was going to have to go home with an irresponsible adult. Um, of course, you could talk for an hour about this. Try to meld that into only a couple minutes of of how we responded to that and what we described the uh, the problem and the solution. So we explained that the patient can sign out against medical advice before they even have a procedure, um, <laughs> because the requirement is that every patient will go home with a responsible adult unless they've been exempted by a physician. So that that was issue number one. Um, Issue number two, they wanted the physician to be able to just exempt the patient because they didn't have a ride. And because there is not really clear guidance um, in the CMS regulations, they they really were pretty sure they could do that. And the conversation we had following that was that you're, you're not only putting the patient at risk and the center at risk, but the physicians who are actually providing the anesthesia and, and performing the surgery on the patient, knowing that the patient was going to leave the facility get into an Uber or a taxi cab, or maybe into a city bus, go home and be alone for the next 24 hours. Everybody was at risk from the patient to the facility, to the anesthesiologist and the surgeon. Um, I think, you know, we we explained all of that and hopefully um, we'll be able to find another solution for that particular center because they do have a large 
larger number of patients who do not have support people. And, you know, to Kathy's point, there are a lot of aged patients coming for their cataract surgery and, and maybe they don't have any family members in the area and they don't have anybody who can drive them home. And, and sadly, they, you know, they do need their procedures and it's not, it's not just the aged population. It, it's every surgery center deals with this at some point in time with some patient. Jenna, you are uh, the the policy person on on, on many of these things. Uh, so let's just briefly kind of talk about what we would expect to see in a policy, um, and what type of documentation you would see a physician sign off on. Um, you know, if they were if they were actually going to an exempt patient, and what would that expectation be? Well, usually the need for an escort is included in your patient rights and responsibilities. Right, that the patient should be receiving. Before they even getting to the center, so that they know what they're, you know, they know that that's one of their responsibilities, um, and then they're going to need to sign off on that when they get to the center. Depends on the center. Some centers specifically have a place to document um, who the ride's going to be, who the ride is, and yeah. the contact information. And then, um, in terms of documentation, you would have in your discharge orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have seen some centers that have specifically a box that they check, especially centers that do a lot of local cases, mm-hmm. um, that they'll say discharge with an escort or without an escort. But there's a difference. Um, yeah. Local case cases don't require the escort unless the case that they had done could cause an impairment. Right. So, for example, if even if it was a local and it your hands were disabled, right? You know, but if you, you were would be able taking to drive. a lesion off my right cheek, yeah, whichever one you choose, um, <laughs> I should be able to get home, yeah, without an an issue. When it comes to the documentation, I would recommend that a center speaks to their um, legal counsel yeah. or their malpractice provider to find out what they would expect to see a physician write in the documentation that would relieve him or her of responsibility. And yeah, and and to your point, there's no way to completely get rid of the responsibility that that physician is taking on when they exempt a patient from that. And that's an important point you need to make to your doctors. And by the way, I, I you know I'll just mention this too. I, I'm often the one that's called in and then try to explain to the the doctors why they can't exempt an entire population here or what type of a document they have to do. And basically, what I do is I give them a document that says I take full responsibility, you know, for you know this patient getting home. You you know, I, you know, I've, I've assessed the patient and they've recovered sufficiently from anesthesia uh, to be able to make it home safely. You know, there aren't many doctors that are going to want to sign that document knowing that they've just taken on that responsibility. So that's one way to get them to convince them that they they probably shouldn't allow that. The best scenario is to get them on board, make sure the patient is well informed prior to surgery, enforce a couple times that the cases are canceled, especially if you do that. And if the word gets out to the GI community that you're going to cancel a case where you've just prepped. Uh, if you don't show up with your, uh, you know, with your uh, responsible adult, uh, you know, the, the word gets around and they they find people, you know, people find people to take them home. Right. You know, there's going to be situations and, uh, you know, where, you know, there's going to be a problem and it's going to occur to all of us. But we we have to minimize that possibility and and uh, and and make sure that we are always remembering the safety of the patient first. Well, and that's where it comes mm-hmm. to the leadership team of the um, of the center being able to have the power to enforce their own rules. Right. Um, so the 
you know, whether it's the nurse director or the administrator or the business office manager, whoever's in charge of that patient when they walk in, that they know that they have the governing board behind them that allows them to say, I'm sorry, we can't do your surgery. Right. Because if they're not going to be backed, more than likely they're not going to start that process. So it's really important that everyone is on board with that, right. um, in my opinion. Well said. So uh, again, one thing to make sure just to finish this topic up is that if you do exempt somebody from it, make sure that that exemption is specific to the patient that you're exempting. It should be written in the progress notes or if you have a separate document, you know, whatever, however your forms are set up, but it needs to be specific to that patient and mention specifically why you're exempting that one patient. There should be, and it says right in the interpretive guidelines, there's no such thing as a, as a, um, you know, a, a global um, uh, blanket, there, blanket exemption. Right. There is no. There's no such thing as a blanket exemption. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the one thing that CMS, you know, where CMS is never quick except with COVID, um, <laughs> in making changes, is that the 24 hours is not always realistic because yeah. uh, the high percentage of the patients are going back to work the next morning. Mm-hmm. So they're not home for 24 hours after their procedure with a responsible adult. Yeah. 24 hours, though, isn't in the CMS. It's in it's in the old HCC requirement. So, uh, so I, that people are aware that it's not that there isn't a time limit, but that, right. you know, they make that. sure that they're, um, you know, till they're safe. Right. And that's a very good point. I mean, we found that many centers have, uh, even after Triple H C removed that 24-hour requirement, mm-hmm. many organizations, I think this is a very safe thing to do, have continued that, you know, or at least to be able to... People change over the past... It's, recently, it's yeah. Over the past three years, but... Yeah, but it's still there. I mean, yeah. I mean, a, a very conservative approach would be to request that. And, you know, again, if you put it on paper and, you know... You, that's the expectation you set. You know, you're protecting yourself legally. You're setting an expectation. What they do, you know, once they go at home, then becomes their responsibility, not yours. If you didn't tell them before huh, that you expect somebody to be with them for a period of time, right. you know, but, you are taking the responsibility. But if your policy says 24 hours, then you you have to follow your policy. So that's well, at least to tell them. But you can't enforce it. I mean, you're no, not going to go to their home. But when they're, you can't have the doctor say you can go to work in the morning and it's five right. o'clock in the afternoon because now. Your whoever's involved in your center is not following your center policy. Very good point. Very so good point. You, you you want to watch and make you know we all every year we're supposed to review our policies, right? right. So look at that one and see what it says. If it says twenty four hours, have a have a chat with your leadership and see if that's how you really want it to be. Uh, and of course, uh, that was a great segue. Thank you very much into the topic of policy manuals. Um, policy manuals are are always a challenge. Um, you know, we we find as surveyors that we go in and you know uh, we we have to before we get the policy manual, we have to wipe the dust off of it first and before we open it. Um, you know, sometimes we have to unstick the pages because they've actually never read those pages. Uh, the, the policy manuals that I love are the ones that are all torn up with yellow stickies on them all over the place, and uh, you know, coffee stains on every other page then you know that they're actually using the policy manual um you know there's things called pdfs now <laughs> well, there is that 
<laughs> but but to your point, Jen, I don't care whether it's a PDF. I don't whether it's a website. <laughs> yeah, you know, Lori and I are looking at Jen. What's a PDF? And why, I want that paper. Um, but you know, definitely. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, you know, to that point, Jenna, there is technology out there that is, you know, really helping us to spread widely. You know, the documents. I think you know those of us that have been in the industry for a long time remember. Uh, sometimes we just couldn't find the policy manual, not because you know there weren't seventeen copies of it somewhere. It's just that somebody had it sequestered in another area, but now there is a you know widespread uh, implementation. Jenna, you've also been involved recently with some of the online uh, policy manual. How how is that going? Um, it's a lot of work on. It's a lot of legwork in the beginning. Yeah, and some of the programs out there look very very nice once you get there, but it's a lot of effort on the center's part to get it to that point. Um, But I mean, there are some very nice programs out there nowadays that you can manage your your policy manuals online. Um, A lot of my centers are more using it just, you know, using document storage, you know, either they have some a website that their employees have access to that the policy manual is available on, or they have a network drive Mm -hmm. that the policy manuals available on in a PDF form. Um, but there are a couple programs that specifically like index all of the policies. To make it easier to change yeah, and, to, and know yeah. the, the, the timing of the and change. And some nice too, because you can like have attachments to it. So not only can you have, the, can they have the the policy, uh, but they can also have like the, re- you know, the easy links to the resources that were used to develop that policy, whether it's like a CDC regulation or a right. CMS regulation or, um, or sorry, CDC guideline or a CMS regulation and so forth. <laughs> I'm going to look at Sue Cronkite and Amy Cronkite since they, I just put their two names next to each other. Um, obviously, it's the uh, mother daughter team here. They don't they never want to be called uh, policy experts. Uh, they, they have. Uh, uh, for whatever reasons, they've had some challenges lately with uh, clients getting them to, uh, you know, keep on top of the policy manuals. But, I, you know, I think the lesson coming out of it, I just wanted you to kind of talk about some of the challenges that you have. I mean, yeah, you have a consulting firm like ours, you know, perhaps, or a regulatory, you know, services firm like ours that provides, uh, you know, assistance in putting together a policy. But it doesn't matter whether it's that or, you know, somebody in your organization puts together a policy manual. What do you need to do with that policy manual once you've drafted it? I mean, they certainly need to review it. You know, as an organization, they need to know what's in it um, and be following those policies. It's not just an instruction manual that we send over that you don't need. You know, we're not putting together a crib. It's running your entire operation. So um, I don't think a lot of people realize how important those policies are. You know, yes, you need to show them to the surveyors when they get there, but you also need to be following them Uh and know what they say. Yeah. And giving feedback, whoever's in the different departments that are addressed, you know, should be looking them over and making sure they're still current, um, that they reflect what you're really doing. Obviously, the board has to approve all of those. And, you know, my biggest problem is I think sometimes people don't even know where the policy manual is. I mean, it can get, you know, that bad. But yeah, it's it's got to be like John always says, a living, breathing document where, you know, it really is your instruction manual for your and, um, and for your your center. You really need the buy-in of your employees because they're the ones, especially when you get into like the more clinical policies of they're the ones doing the day to day. And you want to make sure that that is up to date with what your current practice is. 
um, some of these policies, you know, I know people just reapprove every year and they were originally written in, you know, 2006. If, you if know, that early, yeah, it might have been that, from the is that is that still what you're doing? Um, you know, we can update it for from a regulatory standpoint of, oh, this new rule came out. We're going to add this policy in. But it's the older policies that you really got to look at. But is this still the way we're doing things? Is this still accurate to our center? And you really need the people from those different departments to be reading them and, you know, given the opportunity to give you feedback. And I think some of my centers that have done the best job in the past year of reviewing their policy manuals have been the ones that really just broke up the manual, depending on who, you know, um, who the policies affected and gave it to people from that department and said, okay, you are now responsible for this section and, you know, let us know what you, you know, and, and, and also give them the standards from triple HC and say, Hey, like, what do you have questions about? Mm -hmm. Um, What do you want to know? And, then I, my my one center uh, came back with a whole spreadsheet of questions that their employees came up yeah. with. Um, and some of them, you know, were like, oh, you know, it might have been in just a different chapter that they didn't yeah. end up participating in. But, you know, it was it was really nice to see at my one center um, how how much the um, the employees did take accountability and, and pride in the work that they were doing yeah. to update that policy. Well, the, the other thing, too, is, you know, as opposed to us um, older people that liked the paper copies, it, it's great if you have it online, but you better make sure that your staff have access. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You can't just have uh, one computer that's used in one department. And so staff will not have access because it's being used for patient care. Yeah. So that's something that you have to take into account, as well as that time factor that we talked about that we don't have for education. They also have to have the time to be able to access Absolutely. policies. if they. And, and the other thing, questions. Donna, your old center yeah. used to send out weekly policies and that's when you know you'd be calling me up when i was your (laughs) donna is so itching she she's just been shaking ready to talk about this thing it's one of her favorite topics donna uh, so donna macchio is uh one of our newer she's been with us over a year now but uh she came from one of our centers and she was very annoying uh with the amount of time that she not say that (laughs) (laughs) i did (laughs) but she she was the one that would uh would keep us on track with the policies so donna talk about your philosophy about 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 policies both when you're administrator and what you've you've brought to us here at at, uh, hs so i think um that as an administrator one of the things i realized very very quickly is it doesn't matter if i know all of the rules if nobody else knows all of the rules and the and the best way to have them know the rules is to have them read the policies and live them. And so we did assign policies of the week every week, depending on how long the policy was. Policy would be on a clipboard in the lounge and every staff member was expected to read it and sign off on it. And that became part of their weekly in-service. But to Jenna's point about com- coming back with questions and a spreadsheet, it really got the staff engaged in knowing what the policies were. Sometimes they would ask questions about, I don't understand this rule, why do we have to do it? And just explaining it to them was very helpful. And sometimes the policies were not 100% correct. And we would be, I, I would have to go back and say, okay, well, we must have missed the latest update. Or I would have new employees who would say, well, at our, at our center, my old center, we did it this way. And it would kind of get the whole conversation going. And it made it easier to update the policies throughout the 
a year instead of just once a year because there are so many people looking at them. Um, now, the hard thing about that is there are some people who just prefer not to read the policies and come and ask the question, what, what are we supposed to do with blah, blah, blah? And instead of answering the questions, I started saying, did you look at the policy book? Did you go find the policy book? Go read it. If you don't understand, come back to me. And that, you know, that takes a little bit of practice. It took practice on my part because I wanted to help them and answer their questions, but that really wasn't helping them at all. So it it, it takes a little bit of work, but once you get everybody engaged, it's a much easier process for everybody in the organization. The big takeaway here is uh, making sure that you keep your policy manual up to date, that you uh, make sure that it's widely spread and then uh, your staff, uh, you know, provides input, uh, you know, to keep it up to date and and uh, ongoing education to Donna's point, just, you know, like that weekly um, thing that you did was uh, was very helpful to your staff, all of your staff, you know, in front of a survey that that was not ever an issue. I, I did want to point out one thing about electronic um policies and procedures is, you know, one of the disasters that you could have is when your technology goes down. Mm -hmm. And if your policy manual is only available online, that's going to be a bit of a problem. Uh, So you should always have, uh, you know, a paper printout of your disaster plan. Um, So let's move on to uh, (laughs) technology. I guess it's a good segue into technology. A lot is going on in this area. Uh, Judy, I'm going to look at you in the beginning as our medical record expert. Uh, Judy, tell us a little bit about how you become a medical record expert, first of all, and then talk a little bit about, or a lot, you know, depending upon your your uh, your energy today. Yeah. We are we are doing this on a Friday. It's the afternoon, so we're all running out of energy here. But talk a little bit about where we're heading with regard to EMRs and the challenges that we have, specifically in the amateur surgery industry with EMRs, which is very different than other settings. Yeah. Um, as I did research, I mean, when I got the education of medical records, it wasn't specific to ambulatory surgery centers, naturally. So then once I got it, brought it home, so to speak, um, there are aspects that are just not not the same, you know, um, just the review of the records. Hospitals have, you know, the, the ability, the luxury, let's say, of having a whole department. You know that looks through and makes sure that the the records are completed and accurate and um, legible and all of that. Your average your average amateur surgery center doesn't have that, nor do they have the time to have somebody sit and do that. Um, we're lucky if we can just get like a nursing chart audit done, um, which does a good job. You know, finding things that we should work on. Um, EMRs do make it a whole lot easier. I I uh, I review records for both completely on paper centers and completely electronic centers. And each has their own set of, of stupid, <laughs> you know, what, you know what I mean? Um, with the paper ones, it's the normal stuff that you would, you would normally, that this got lost. This didn't get scanned. This got scanned into the wrong patient, you know, and all that is human error. And, and that's certainly eliminated, you know, once we get to um, the EMRs, not a lot of EMRs were built specifically for us. I'm, I, and I'm sure people have come across this. A lot of software that we want to use, there's these, uh, you know, mm-hmm. these web pages to help us um, keep track of all our paperwork, all of our quality improvement. They're not made specifically for us. We're different. We're like the, what did you call it, Christina? Redheaded stepchild. I can only <laughs> say that because I'm a redhead. Because she's a screaming redhead. <laughs> um, so it takes work. You know, it takes work to either sit with your... EMR vendor and say, okay, this is what I need it to do. These are the things I need it to capture. Help me make those changes. And and most of the time, I'm I'm hoping that your your vendor will do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And if not, 
Fine. Thank you. We ask. Now we're going to figure it out for ourselves. And then you have to put into place, look at, we're not getting signatures from these patients on their, on their discharge instructions. We know we talk to them. We know that they understand, but I have no way of proving that it was done. Again, it comes back to, if it isn't on paper, it didn't happen. Right. Um, and what I found the most difficult when, when I started to talk to people about, you know, once I finished their review is the way your record should work is so that a person could walk in and follow that patient from the moment they entered the door to the moment they left the door and see in chronological order who saw them, what they did, what they saw, what vitals they had, and be able to follow it without, you know, dropping a stepping stone. Um, and I think that's harder for us. I think we don't have the manpower. We don't have the time. So we really do have to rely on that technology. Technology is just not quite there yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that is so true. And there's some good products out there. So it's a really very, oh, there are. I didn't mean to make it no, sound no. Bad. And there's and there's some really bad products out there too. We're certainly not going to mention them. But the uh, uh, but it, you, to your point, we're not to the point where we have a perfect system right now. We probably never will be. But but it 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 is a limitation that really the people that develop these systems aren't necessarily people that are going to be using them on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's exactly true. These people don't. The people that built them don't know. Yeah. The difference with the name of the Tory surgery center don't know what we're up against, don't know what our regulations say. Um, so they never thought of putting it in. Where do you think we're heading with regard to um, adoption of EMRs in the amateur surgery center? You, you probably have a good pulse on that because you you work with so many centers. That, well, of the ones we have, we have very few that are yeah. still on paper. Um, in fact, it's getting to be fewer and fewer that have a hybrid model, you know, because yeah. we do have hybrid models where a lot of it is put in and then the rest is scanned. scanned in. It, yeah. Even that's getting less and less. Um, I don't think we're going to have a choice. I don't think anybody's going to have a choice, you know, eventually. In fact, I thought the whole let's get rid of paper thing would have made it faster than it even turned out to be. Yeah. Um, And I'm hoping that they're just going to get better. Yeah. I mean, we feel like they've been around forever, but they really are in their infancy. Let's be, those of us that were working in the hospital in like the eighties, the whole electronic thing is new, you know, it is in its infancy. So I'm, I'm hoping that it will It'll grow into itself. Does does that make sense? Certainly grow into us. Yeah. What, well, what about the smaller ASCs that don't have a lot of the financial ability to implement it? Has no, it gotten... we do. We have a couple of those. Yeah. Believe it or not, the the few we have that are still on paper, right. exactly paper only. Right. I, I think that's where you won't see them go over. Go literally the EMR re- retire for before three, Yeah. For yeah. electronic. To, to be honest, the one that I'm th- the one I have in my head that's on paper are the mo- ones most willing to listen to me and make changes because they can. They can very I'll quickly. change this form. Yeah. You know, and then I'll show my staff and then it's changed. Where the other is, okay, I'll call my vendor and then maybe my vendor will call me back. And yeah, maybe my vendor will help me. And the vendor will charge me. And the that's vendor right. will charge me and they won't come in and teach my staff. You know, so almost they're at an advantage because they have that control. Mm-hmm. And you do give up some of that. Yeah. There are other technological changes that are occurring. I'm I'm looking at uh, Jenna, who has been at the forefront of this and working with some of the, the new technologies for, you know, checklists, incident reporting, credentialing, peer review, uh, chart audits, contract management, policy manual maintenance, things like that. Um, you know, there, there's some great technology out there. You've had some experience with it. I don't want you to necessarily talk about specific products right now. And th- then then we're going to look at our support specialists who actually use these products and enter data on a regular basis. And I want, want to have their feedback. But Jenna, why don't you start that conversation? Then you can turn over to your friends. <laughs> so, <laughs> I would say at this point, I've gotten to play with, I guess, uh, about four different of the programs out there. 
some I like better than others. Um, I think a lot of it is what you put into it. You get out of it. Um, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think you kind of have to really do a good job of demoing um, the different products out there and finding out what one's going to work best on what your priorities are, like what you need it for the most, you know, because there's different ones that have different strengths and, and weaknesses. Um, so I've found it for myself. It works very nice because, uh, you know, it's easier. I can go in and get all the information from my clients to do my quality improvement each mm-hmm. quarter. I don't have to harass them. But also I've I, I know some of my centers, there's, you know, oh, I've got to have this paper, you know, these incident report was filled out by this person, then so-and-so needs to review it, then so-and-so needs to review it, and then I'll get it back. And sometime in that process, it gets lost. Yeah. <laughs> so a center that has their incident reports on an online program, it's not lost. It's always there and you always have access to it. So I, I know I've suggested that to a couple of my clients. <laughs> Well, that have lost things a couple too many times. Too many. I have considered. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but to your point, you you do need to demo these things. You do need to talk to people that are currently using those products. Um, we we would be talking about a, a product that uh, was perfect if if one existed. You know, each of them has their strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I think you've said this, Jenna. If I could take all, I think there's four major priorities. I think you said there's four major. If you could take all four of those and combine them, you know, or take the best out of each of them. Pieces of everything. Yeah, you would have yeah. a good one. So, uh, I, you know, we our support specialist um, Laura and Mary. Uh, now, you don't necessarily enter data into it, but you're you're the one that's looking at that raw data, and then you take that data out and you you manipulate it. Um, so, uh, from an access standpoint, probably even more so than Jenna, because Jenna's looking at the upper level reports and she's making you do all the real like number crunching. The what grunt work. <laughs> work, right? So, what do you what do you think of of where those systems are. I like the systems Mm -hmm. because it does cut down on emails back and forth. Mm -hmm. It makes it easier for the ASC because they're doing it in real time. Right. They're putting it in and then I can retrieve it. You know, it's, it's fast. It's easy. It's one, it's like one pad of paper as opposed to, ten. you know, it, right. Ten, ten sheets of paper. Or, you or binders, you know. Yeah. yeah. Five million binder. I know I have one center right now that I get weekly emails. I have like such like patient satisfaction from back in 2003. How long do I need to change that for? <laughs> About one week ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. You're getting rid of all that paperwork that you normally would have, you know, the surveillance sheets and the incident reports and things. It's all online, a lot less paperwork. It's a paperless society. (laughs) And I find I like it and I wish every center would use it (laughs) because. Legibility probably is this. Yeah. It's easy to understand. Yeah. Um, There's no questions whether it's a yes or a no or a maybe. I find them. I like them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care which one they use. Just use well, one. That's a very yeah. interesting point, Laura, because you you work with probably. I mean, I know Jenna does too, but you're you know you're really getting in there because you have to you know be able to access that information, right. be able to look at it quickly. And of course, unfortunately for you, you don't have the level of training that perhaps these centers have had on it. So you know the so ability to is me just nosing around. 
Right, right. And being able to do that without having to do that without, you know, I will go in and click buttons to see what it brings me to. So that explains why I get the phone calls from the company saying our entire computer system is broken. (laughs) It was Mary. (laughs) Showing Mary. She started clicking buttons. (laughs) I don't know what things got crazy (laughs) there. Yeah. But it it and because I'm allowed to do that, I can Mm -hmm. go in and look and navigate. And see, I have found a lot of stuff that I never knew really was there. Yeah. And it makes it much easier. As Jenna said, you're not losing that data. You're not, uh, it's not even losing. It's just, uh, you know, taking the time to find where you put it, you know, you, you know, say five minutes here, five minutes there, you know, it starts to add up to real time. And I know a lot of my centers like the dashboards to keep them on track of, right. you know, for credentialing and employee files, especially like, what do I, you know, what do I need to yeah, focus on or for the logs you know say, you need yeah. this yeah or reminders that kind of say oh you know we need to do the quarterly or the monthly or the weekly whatever yeah um you know are we on track with things and it's kind of an in your face uh you know you know that you need to do five million things on yeah. a daily weekly monthly basis yeah. but you know it's kind of like an in your face reminder of yeah. oh you know it's been a month since we did this last, uh, you know, we need to get that done again. Yeah. Um, let's move on to finance. Uh, my finance people have been itching here because they they just love talking. Uh, Tony, we're going to have to turn that microphone toward you since Tony is one of the most soft-spoken people on the entire planet here. So we probably have to put that microphone right in his face. <laughs> I know some people who wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And actually, we can hear him very well. So, um, uh, so I'm going to ask, uh, you know, Tony, Alex, and Zach, and of course myself on the finance side, just to kind of talk about some of the things that are going on right now. Uh, Zach, I'm going to put uh, you on the spot. Um, so, uh, Zach is our expert in cost reporting. So, those of you um, that are from New York State know what I'm talking about. Uh, but the reason we're talking about it is because there is a national movement to do cost reporting nationally, and uh, so just a little bit of of history here you know hospitals nursing homes home care organizations uh, and do dialysis centers have to file cost reports to tony or anyway you know organizations that are are paid under the medicare program are often required to file uh cost reports and they have to be audited which means that your financial statements have to be audited um and we are really one of the only industries especially one of the largest industries out there that don't file annual cost reports to the Medicare program. Now, the state of New York is an exception. State of New York requires cost report preparation for Medicaid. I don't really want to dwell because this is a single state issue, but uh, MedPAC, which is a a part of the United States Congress that reports to the United States Congress on a a twice annual basis, um, uh, you know, about their recommendations for the Medicare uh, financial uh, reporting program, has been recommending for a good 15 years that amateur surgery centers be forced to do the cost reporting system. So, Zach, you uh, head up our cost report uh, division here. Um, New York is the only uh, state that requires cost reporting right now. It is not required from a federal standpoint. But one of the challenges, I'm also looking at Tony here, who used to, uh, you know, work uh, as the chief financial officer for the Catholic health system, you know, in Buffalo, and and you you were responsible for overseeing the, the cost reporting system. Uh, you know, cost reporting is is not a cheap process. So if if this were to be something that were mandated uh, by uh, Medicare, 
you know, you as a, as a as CFO, I mean, even in the hospital, it's an expensive process, right? Yeah, well, it's uh, some a process uh, just in an individual hospital. We had um, one individual dedicated to for a good, you know, quarter, quarter of the year. Yeah. Uh, it was a pretty big deal, all the step downs and everything. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, it's a big reason we needed to have audits. Right. Uh, you want to have an audit anyway, I think, because yeah. I'm a financial person. But uh, you have to have an audit in order to confirm independently those numbers that are, you know. And the audit itself takes a lot of time. Right. And uh, here in New York State, um, a lot of centers pr- probably wouldn't get audits if they didn't uh, have the requirement of the cost report. Um, but, um, you know, so it takes takes quite a bit of time. I think. And, and of course, that translates into a lot of money, too. Yeah. You know, it's, and, and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and often the, the price of the audit uh, is dependent more. It doesn't scale dramatically. You know, there's almost right. a base price, yeah. you know, and the, the size of the organization is not going to dramatically change the amount of money that they're going to charge for an audit. That's, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Zach, you, uh, as I said, you head up our uh, cost report uh, department. Uh, you deal with the auditors all the time. You pull together the information for the cost report. Um, and FYI, for those that are not aware, Zach spends approximately three to, I would say, three to four months of his uh, life every year uh, working on cost reports exclusively. You know, and uh, and of course, uh, then he's he's working twenty four hours a day during the time frame that we're waiting, uh, you know, for the actual filing. Just talk a little bit about the process. You know, kind. Of quickly and and the challenges that you have dealing with the auditors too as you're going through this because our, our centers again this is not a requirement from a medicare standpoint now but it has been something that has been proposed by medpac over and over again and it's possible that in the future that could happen I, and and zach the reason i want this is i want people to to make sure they make it clear to their congressman that this is not something that we should be doing too sure yeah i mean some you know one of the biggest challenges we always typically faces just getting everything in in a timely manner, honestly. So um, in addition to the information that's coming from the auditors, which can be significantly delayed from time to time, um, depending on if this year we're running into the issue with uh, some some of our clients' tax returns are, are on extension, which delays the audit, which delays obviously the results of the financial statements. Um, so, so getting everything to us in a timely manner um, not only the stuff from the audit, but everything else that comes separate from the audit. So the the, the revenue by payer data and the salaries and wages data. Um, you know what we always emphasize is as early as we can get in get it into us as possible to to process is is good. Um, that way we can be ready to basically file everything as soon as the uh, software is released. Um, but, but beyond that, one of the things we run into typically is just not everything that we get looks exactly the same from client to client, which which is typical, you know, the, the type of reports that we'll receive for revenue are different from um, one to another, which just sort of poses a unique challenge. But yeah, as, as long as it is in in a timely manner, that, that gets us the most the most time to, to work on that and hopefully get it as early as, as possible and saves us a lot of stress down down the line when, when we get to um, you know, once the software is released and when, when we actually get a deadline. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To his point that the the challenge with finding with the cost reporting is that it, it is done using, you know, computer programs. The programs are developed by in New York, it's New York State Department of Health. And uh, for those that are having to report those other entities, not ASCs, um, it's developed by the Medicare program and published by the Medicare program, you know, a month or so before 
or a couple months before the actual cost report is due. So it's an expensive process. You know, um, we will certainly inform you on the podcast if uh, this is something that eventually gets added to uh, one of the requirements, because that would be a huge issue for our organizations. Tony, I want to talk about financial reporting for a bit. We uh, we as a company, Amateur Ethical Strategies, don't do a lot of financial reporting right now. And Zach is involved in that process also. But um, I just want to talk a bit about, you know, where... You know, so many of our amateur surgery centers are small. You know, they don't have the resources to be able to put together regular financial reports. And and yet our doctors are demanding more and more information. It's not it's not like the good old days when we were making so much money that it really, you know, regular monthly financial reports were necessary. Uh, you've been, you know, you used to run amateur surgery centers, of course, you used to, uh, much bigger organizations too. But, uh, you know, you can kind of have an interesting perspective going from, uh, you know, big hospital uh, to when you retired. I, I don't understand your term, your definition of retirement because it's, I think, differently than mine. My third yeah, retirement. Uh, post-retirement. So you, works. I know you thought, I, I don't know. Did you think it was going to be easier going to uh, an ambulatory surgery center from the hospital? Uh, it was different. Yeah. I didn't know what I thought, but <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it's definitely uh, different. Um, you know, the uh, as I was th- sitting and thinking about it, the, at the hospital, you know, it's a, it's a larger organization, as you said, and um, uh, we had robust Financial management uh, departments, people with college uh, education, uh, specifically, college yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, you know, uh, even in uh, you know, uh, we'd have you know four or five accountants, right? Not to mention all the support people, yeah, uh, paying bills. We'd have uh, you know an army of people paying bills and an army of people sending bills, right? In an ambulatory surgery center, uh, we just don't have that robust of team. Yeah, and uh, nor do we usually have that um, level of education yeah. and competence. Right, uh, and often we don't have the financial uh, language or the financial understanding of the value of uh, a good financial reporting. Yeah, uh, to the owners um, and. Um, you know, uh, the Dollar public has required yeah. because not only we're we talking about the owners, but if you need financing, you need to have a good record of what your financial position has been and currently is when you go to a bank. Yeah. So um, uh, it it's not unusual for a an ambulatory surgery center to not have that um, again robust of a system, and when um, the finances are not as um, uh, I think, as you said, maybe there's some downturns or, you know, we're not making quite as much money. Yeah. Want, there's want more response, more answers. But, yeah, why am I not making the money I used to make? Right, yeah. But you don't have the systems or the reportings to really talk about that. Yeah. And then that becomes, I think, um, uh, a, a an area that becomes a mystery to a number of to many uh, administrators in ambulatory surgery because that's really not their background. Yeah. So. I think that, um, you know, it's an area that uh, probably is becoming more and more of an emphasis uh, that uh, we need to have um, a good financial reporting, especially as it's not as easy to make money as it maybe was you yeah. know, in earlier years. And then, um, uh, you know, reach out and get help yeah. uh, for those things. Uh, just changing, you know, just converting from uh, you know, something simple as converting from a cash basis to a cruel basis so that other accountants and banks and, yeah, and that understand. can understand what you're talking about and also be able to compare it to other 
other facilities, you know, and um, and then also uh, with those numbers, be able to do benchmarking, financial yeah. benchmarking that's going to make sense, right. um, uh, you know, to other uh, compared to other organizations that are, um, uh, um, you know, keeping track of of um, where they're at financially. And then, of course, to the owners, to the partners, giving a good um, a good reporting and then being able to say, Here's where our short falls yeah. are. Here's where we need to make some improvements. So uh, it's an interesting area. It's kind of a mysterious area to maybe, uh, you know, I ran ambulatory surgery centers from the business side. So I really needed to get help yeah. on the regulatory side. I got your company to come and help me. Yeah. And I had uh, good nurses to help me because I needed that support. Well, um, so, you know, we have nurses that are good administrators. Yeah, probably much better administrators than I was, but they need to have support on this business side. And right. uh, so that's a, that's another area that we can, you know, I think uh, we can help with. Yeah, and uh, not to not just be advertising here because yeah. uh, you know there aren't that many of us, but I think it's something that uh, needs to be something you're thinking about. Uh, especially on behalf of your owners. Yeah, you know, to Tony's point, we do offer those services now. It's not a big part of our business. And if we get too many clients, we're going to have to expand. Uh, But I think the need for people that understand uh, finance, you know, are are real finance experts, and more specifically, people that understand ASC finance are extremely important. And and to that end, you know, Tony, you, you are leading into, you know, the next point, which is really that financial projections are an important thing, even for the smallest organizations. When things are not going Going well, you want to be able to have a way to determine what you know what what is the future going to look like if this trend continues. You know, what are your financials going to look like? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I think um, you know when when physicians come to us and they want to do a new a new center, mm-hmm. the first thing they know they need financial projections. Yeah, and that's right, they do. And um, uh, so that's what what we do to help them begin new you know start new centers. But that's something that's also needed along the way yeah, to uh, redo a business plan. Well, we're, business plans that I redo, the first place they start is with the financial projection. Yeah. You know, of course, you need with that, that uh, that includes all kinds of assumptions, all the things you need to consider financially and operationally mm-hmm. to uh, come up with where you where you need to be, where you want to be, how you're going to get there and maybe setting your goals realistically uh, that you might not be able to get that particular goal. But um, uh, yeah, so it's uh, financial planning is really important. Uh, I think now more than ever. Right. Well said. And and uh, FYI, I have been asked to speak at ESCA 2024 on the topic of developing financial projections in amateur surgery centers. Mm-hmm. So uh, the education committee, which Laurie and I serve on, um, has recognized that that's one of those things that our, our audiences are looking for. Tony, I wanted to finish by just talking about uh, something that's going on in the finance world that not many people necessarily would know. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's well known that we've had a problem with inflation. Um, you know, food costs have probably been the highest problem or the, the highest number, amount of inflation, energy costs, uh, uh, which permeate all aspects of our of of our economy, because you know you got to transport everything uh, to its end destination, and and uh, I think I think that I was hearing that uh, energy costs are up somewhere around forty percent over the last three years. 
um, which has had a dramatic impact on stream into all those things. And that's a big component of the the, the cost increased in, in uh, food also. Um, but we know we have to bring it under control. The inflation rate is way too high. It is hurting the economy. It's hurting the pocketbooks of individuals. Uh, and unfortunately, that means that... Uh, that the government has to step in and raise interest rates. Uh, we'll go into the economics of it. There's plenty of books out there that will explain that. Uh, but the, the the most common way of reducing uh, inflation is by raising interest rates and cooling the economy down, which unfortunately means there's there's two things, you know, that it starts putting you into a recession. Uh, we know that we have some signs of a recession. But even if a recession doesn't hit, uh, our challenge in the ASCs is going to be the impact on the capital markets. Uh, we are capital-intensive organizations. Uh, we need capital in the form of loans uh, to be able to buy equipment, to be able to build centers, and sometimes just to be able to operate. You know, in terms of being able to to get over those tough parts when you know when you know we need some additional cash flow, like short-term financing. Um, so I, I really don't have a lot to say in this, other than to say, be careful in the future. I mean, as we're sitting here in September of 2023, um, I think you agree with me, right, Tony? That now is the time to finance because very shortly you might not have that that capital access. Yeah, well we we are of course already seeing interest costs increasing from you know substantially from where they were of course 2 or 3 right. years ago but even from you know earlier this year on new projects where we're doing projections and and and, and looking at where we're we're going to be you know uh uh, once we start building right. and those interest rates keep creeping up. So, yeah, if uh, if you need financing, it's better to get it now. Mm -hmm. uh, but get it while the door is open. Yeah. Uh, don't wait until you uh, have a dire need for it. Right. Get it while your finances look good. Right. <laughs> and whether it's um, a long term financing or capital financing, capital financing, uh, working capital financing, that is. And, um, you know, working capital financing, that's the cash for your day-to-day -day work. You know, if you need a, uh, if you think you're going to need a line of credit next year, don't wait till next year to get it. Get it, get that $500,000 line of credit this year Yeah. Uh, while the interest rates are still low. Although that could fluctuate with the interest rates, but your finances are going to be in better shape. You know, the government as, as um, you know, uh, the Fed, whatever, they're not, they, I don't think they're going to be happy till they get us into a recession yeah. at that point. So, well, and because, yeah. that, because all the actions they've taken so far have not cooled no. inflation enough. I mean, and, we- And that's their concern. Yeah, the, the consumer price index is going down, but unfortunately, the consumer price index doesn't calculate some of those things, especially mm -hmm. in- in, in surgery, you know, yeah. some of our costs are going up much higher than CPI, but it's not being reflected in that. And then the other problem, of course, is the uh, is food and energy. Yeah. And and um, I mean, just, you know, the a little bit of analysis that we do uh, for uh, on behalf of um, uh, surgery centers, just looking at the cost of supplies. Other things are going up, you know, because of the increase, but the cost of supplies mm -hmm. is really going up, you know, implants especially. And, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, medical uh, supply providers who have always made sure that they're getting paid plenty yeah. of money. So if there's any any hint of an increase in in uh, costs, they're going to take advantage of it before uh, before that, it really actually hits the supply chain. There, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, and so um, uh, it, just seeing those little bit of increases, you can really appreciate the Fed keeping trying to keep control on inflation because if we have inflation that is you know, the least bit runaway could really be damaging to our whole economy. Right. So, so Absolutely. It's, it's really necessary, but you need to watch out for your store. Yeah. <laughs> your, 
your um, you know your business. Yeah, and and right. by the way, some of my conversations with uh, vendors out there have indicated we, we've heard about uh, challenges, supply chain challenges with pharmacy. I think that's the one area that I'm very concerned about. That you know that drugs might become in short supply in certain areas. So uh, keep an eye, you know, I have very good vendor relationships and keep on top of that because uh, <laughs> the rumors that I'm here, I won't even really call it rumors that the, the straight out, um, as a matter of fact, we're going to have a couple of pharmacists on over the next couple of months talking yeah. about some of the the issues out there. So stay well, tuned for that. Some of the problems there, it's not just that the supply chain, but the supply, you know, yeah. some uh, large pharmaceuticals are getting out of producing certain right you know, drugs and that's um, are moving offshore yeah. because they yeah, just oh, can't yeah. afford to do it right. here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, we're going to finish off our, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mike, uh, D'Ambrosio and Alex Borneman are here also. Do you haven't really said much yet? Uh, they thought they were off the hook as we're getting toward the end, but uh, I think I fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm so sorry, guys. That's right. <laughs> so you're not off the hook. And, and why did we save life safety to the end? Because uh, it's, I don't know why do we because it always depresses people, Alex. <laughs> <Everybody's> <laughs> so leave them, leave them uh, depressed. Yeah, that's a goal. <laughs> bad theory, very bad theory here. So uh, why don't we? Uh, so uh, it, it goes without saying that surveyors are getting surveys are getting tougher when it comes to life safety. Alex, uh, why don't you start by talking about some of the things that have happened recently? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think the biggest reason why there's surveys that are getting tougher is that we. have had the same book for quite a number of years. Uh, you know, when CMS first adopted the 2012 um, Life Safety Code, that was back in 2016 and really 2017 when it really started getting enforced. And, you know, surveyors didn't know anything about it. Now right. we've had it for so many years. Um, surveyors are getting very savvy. Um, Even Lori is starting to understand some of the life safety. Yeah, yeah. No, no, Lori's sleeping. She's <laughs> Lori, going to learn. I think Lori understands life safety as well as I understand infection control. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I understand life safety a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> Friday at 3 30. That's why it is. That youngster. Uh, yeah yeah um but <laughs> so so surveyors are are definitely getting trained better um in in life safety and and they're having experience in the field we've we've seen a lot of issues over the recent years with um electrical um citations that a lot of our centers are having difficulty getting their their electricians and their electrical engineers to actually um, correct issues appropriately, um, even after they're cited, and um, really doing a detailed review of those electrical systems. Well, and I think it's fair to say even finding people to do this work now, let alone finding competent people to do this work or people that are experienced in the industry uh, is, is a challenge. Yeah, it's yeah, an ongoing supply the problem. There's just not, there's not the experience in, in yeah. rectifying those problems. Right, in, right, in right. In, in finding any sort of contractor, um, I know we've had clients that have gone through three different medical gas contractors yeah. that, um, you know, without success of actually correcting their changes post-survey. Um, yeah. So, you know, and then, and then that doesn't even count 
you know, all of the little things that have to be done around your center for, you know, just regular maintenance and finding finding those staff members that have the training necessary for this industry. Yeah, yeah what Alex is actually alluding to is that we you know, we have we talk a lot about nursing, finding nursing staff. We talk a lot about finding, you know, uh, uh, surgical techs. Um, but even receptionists and even, you know, maintenance, it's not even, you know, you don't necessarily need a maintenance person to do a lot of this life safety stuff, but you have to have somebody that's at least comfortable dealing with it. Well, that's not easy. Right. And you need, you need a contractor. If, yeah, if you don't have somebody in-house that can patch a wall, you need somebody out right. outside. Or they can fill yeah. a hole. Um, right. Yeah. You know, it's, we're running, I, I think it, you know, it's, it's that shortage of, of labor, uh, you know, throughout the industry. It's you know permeating through the entire uh, organization. Now. With drills, um, you know we're, we're seeing when drills not being completed. You know they they need to be quarterly. And, yeah, and you're just not seeing some of those done on a quarterly basis. Again, because priorities, you know, are such a there's just such a time constraint. So seeing quite a bit of that. Too. And, and there's a lot of citations going out there. Uh, you know, right now for failure to do those drills right. or or failure to do them correctly, you know, uh, failing to, you know, keep in mind a drill's got to be, you know, scenario based. You have to have a scenario, you have to walk through it, you have to do an analysis of what's going on. Uh, yeah, they have to be unannounced. They, you can't tell them what's going to happen. And it's got to be a different time during the day, which includes during surgery. After an organization has been cited for a problem that requires more than 45 days to fix. Uh, we run into what we call time limited waivers. You've um, had the pleasure, I'm, I'm being sarcastic here, uh, of uh, filing quite a number of waivers. I don't know if you've ever added them up lately, but uh, you've had, and, and keep in mind, uh, uh, time limited waivers are, are waivers or these type of problems with our clients tend to happen with these older facilities um, that have, you know, they might've passed the survey in the past, but the, you know, the surveyors haven't been that experienced in, you know, finding these problems they didn't recognize or didn't see it in the last time, uh, or those organizations uh, are being held to a higher standard because people are actually reading the standards properly. So that puts us in a position where even an organization has been doing very well on life safety surveys in the past suddenly runs into a problem. And what do we end up doing? Yeah, we have quite a number. I know one client alone, I think, required nine. So yeah. um, that certainly boosted the number and, and they're becoming, again, more prevalent as surveyors become, uh, life safety surveyors become more in, attuned to the requirements. Time limited waivers, it varies. The requirements uh, vary across accreditation organizations and states. Um, most states have their own time limited waiver form. Um, that they want you to use. And then the accrediting bodies, I know HHC has a number of items that they want, but mm -hmm. no format. So you kind of get to create your own form um, and fill it out. But generally speaking, what they want to see is, okay, first off, what were you cited for? Um, that has to be in there. And then what are you going to do to correct it? What is the time frame and the major milestones of the corrections? And then also, what are you going to do to mitigate the risks in the meantime, um, both from a life safety standpoint, but a patient safety standpoint? And then from there, um, some some like to know the costs as well, especially the costs related to any mitigation that you might be doing. And there's also when there's patient safety concerns, they like to get a letter, a signed letter from the medical director and at times sign letters from other 
uh, contractors involved, electrical engineers and, and the like. So there's a there's a lot of different elements that can come into play with time limited waivers. And unfortunately, fact of the matter is you put all this work in, you submit it. Sometimes you even get feedback from either the accrediting organization or the state. But then once it goes to CMS, you usually never hear back until you've completed the work and you tell them before it's actually even been approved that, hey, you know, we don't need the time limited waiver anymore because, um, you know, we we fixed the electrical system now. Um, yeah, two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. <laughs> yeah. and, and it is an important point to... Um, they they have been trying to limit the amount of time that they are giving centers. Um, and what that means is uh, it used to be basically three years was the maximum that they'd be giving out. Um, and that's still the case that that's the maximum, but um, it's really more, they're trying to get it down to about a year um, for most items, um, unless it's it's a major improvement. And I will tell you, because of staffing issues and because of, you know, sometimes it's just people dragging their feet, but it can be hard to meet a year on, on some of these issues. And I think supply chain issues also come into play where materials, you know, uh, are in short supply in a number of different uh, areas. So, so that can also delay the project. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The the going rate, I think, for, for a generator was about 18 months, about half a year ago. Um, I think it's improved since since then but it is important to keep in mind that doors and any major pieces of equipment could have significant delays yeah. in your project yeah i mean if you're looking to build a surgery center in the next year order your generator now i'm, I'm not kidding i, I mean yeah. we had a center that was delayed for well we've had centers that have been delayed many times for uh generator issues it seems to be one of the major issues that uh you know either uh, procuring the generator or the the regulatory issues with uh, setting it up because of the fuel, you know, there, there's always regulations surrounding how you manage the fuel there. So, right. And sterilizers have been another. Say, oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, sterilizers are a big item as well. Um, I know I'm on one project right now where, sure, maybe we can get the rest of the project done by the end of the year, but will a sterilizer be in time? Yeah. You know? Alex, um, there have been some very difficult situations. We were brought into a situation where um, a center had significant citations, uh, and then realistically, they could not meet them. So it uh, became an urgent issue, and they were uh, basically asked to shut down um, operations. Talk a little bit about that. Um, again, it was a client that we were brought into after they had been cited. It, you know, it, it was quite apparent that they had problems, and had they hired a company like ours first, I think they they would have been able to fix them became, before they came major. But uh, describe a little bit about the challenges that you have with that. Yeah, there's a, quite a number of changes throughout. Um, staffing issues, unfortunately, tend to be kind of forefront in the industry right now. And major problems can occur when you don't have leadership in place to ensure that you're following all of the regulations. And that's kind of the day in day out solution um, to a lot of the problems is, that, you know, in this particular case, but also in general, how you avoid being this type of center is, is having that solid leadership in place. But in addition, other issues that come into play, um, having good documentation of of your building um, and how it was constructed, approvals along the way, changes that might have been made. Because in this in this case, you know, you go back and when DOH is asking you, hey, 
why aren't you meeting the requirements of many basic things like something as minor or seemingly small as the size of a bathroom for example why why is the bathroom not ada compliant you know that could be solved by having proper architectural drawings to figure out in, in documentation of submissions to doh to determine okay why why were those changes made or were they approved if you identify changes that were not approved um you know digging into those and making sure that those those can be remedied before you have a, a citation along those lines also getting advice from consultants i mean mm -hmm. <laughs> unfortunately uh not to toot our own horn but you, you need you need consultants to help you verify that your facility is is in compliance and and identify those areas of risk mm -hmm. you know if it's not necessarily saying you're going to be able to fix all of those areas of risk especially when it comes to the building immediately but at least you've identified them go down the process of what would the cost be and then that that really helps you with your risk management plan and, and it'll help you to know which what are the low-hanging fruit that you can definitely fix that are it's not going to cost you a lot of money uh they can still get you into a lot of trouble and what are the the ones that are so expensive that you're likely to have to do a time limited waiver or you know start doing some work on it even before the surveyor cites you for it right a good example of that would be you're missing a pull station a fire alarm pull station you know that's a pretty cheap fix but it can be a condition level citation depending yeah. on um, where it's missing yeah, and, and keep in mind that life safety issues could also result in immediate jeopardy situations. And immediate jeopardy mm -hmm. situation is where you you cannot continue operations until you fix that problem or at least have a very succinct plan to uh, uh, to fix that problem. Yeah, and some of the areas that we've seen this come into play are medical gases, you know, and it's, it's interesting because it is almost more of an operational item. You know, you order too much gas and you store it outside of your medical gas room and all of a sudden you've got an immediate jeopardy a possible immediate jeopardy <laughs> or you have oxygen tanks on all of your patient beds and you know there there is a limit that you can have outside of outside of the medical gas room and and it's important to keep that in mind and be aware of that track how many tanks and what volume is outside that room to make sure that that's not an issue but yeah it it is interesting how a good number we always think of immediate jeopardy on the clinical side but the life safety side you can have them too yeah i want to thank uh all of my team here you have been uh first of all you've had to listen to you know an hour of other people speaking and i appreciate your your patience that i i just want to say i have such a wonderful team here i'm so proud to to work with all of you you've you uh you know we come together as i said twice a year to to do this uh these retreats it's very important for our our clients it's very important for us as a team especially since we're all remote and i i appreciate all the hard work that you've put into this these last three days and we made major decisions we made major um you know industry uh leading uh, you know conversations about what what's the best thing to do and uh we we're proud to be one of those organizations that really is leading the industry and uh in improving the safety of our patients and and our organizations so thank you all
In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So as we talked about earlier, the New York State Association Mandatory Surgery Center's 2023 annual conference will be held October 4th through the 6th, 2023, at the Desmond Hotel in Albany. And I'm going to be speaking and moderating some of the sessions, and we'll have a special episode with, uh, with interviews. And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 9th and 10th, 2023, at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. John will be speaking there, and we hope to have a special episode with interviews. And then if you go to our ASC Central website, that's at asc-central.com website, we've announced two conferences. The first one is on November 16th. The first one is November 16th, 2023, and it's an introduction to finance and accounting for ambulatory surgery centers, and it's going to be recorded live Mm -hmm. uh, virtually, so you'll be able to attend virtually, and it'll also be available on demand after that date. And then on the next day, on November 17th, 2023, we're going to do uh, – we're going to update our ASC Conditions for Coverage and Interpretive Guidelines Conference, um, which will also be uh, live, uh, vir- done virtually, and will be available on demand after that date. And ASCA 2024 will be at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida on April 17th through the 20th, 2024. And I'm actually – I've just been asked to do a second presentation. So the first one okay. is going to be on – uh, financial projections. And the second one is going to be on one of my favorite topics, which is governance in the Ambulatory Surgery Center. And then our upcoming boot camps, October cohort of the ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp is October 31st to November 3rd. The January 2024 cohort of the ASC Administrators Boot Camp is January 23rd to the 26th. And they're all available on ASCCentral.com, our new website. And that is ASC-Central.com, but it's it's known as ASC Central, (laughs) correct. And, of course, on-demand versions of the ASC Director of Nursing and ASC Administrators Boot Camps are available on our sister website, ASC-Central.com. And don't forget about all of our recorded events. Also available on ASC-Central.com, and that's our our 2020 credentialing conference. We're going to repeat that sometime in uh, January 2024. Um, And our fall 2022 finance and accounting conference, our uh, conditions for coverage conference recorded in 2021, which, as we said, we're about to re-record that Mm -hmm. uh, in November, and our medical director conference, which was recorded in 2021. And you might also be interested in our June 2023 on-demand version of the multi-state conference, which is eligible for a, a massive six, 16 AEUs and four okay. IPCH credits. So if you're short on your credits this year, this is a relatively inexpensive way to get those credits as well as have uh, some great topics. We talked about infection mm-hmm. control, life safety, survey preparation, human resources, Introduction. There was an introduction to the Medicare ASC payment system. There was a pharmacy discussion and a discussion of staff retention. It was really a great conference, and it was so successful that we're already planning the 2024 multi-state mm-hmm. conference. And we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is also known as ASC Central, is available on ASC Central. is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, and fire and disaster drills. 
And membership helps to defray the cost of producing this podcast, including research, staff, travel costs, to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And for more information here, you may visit asc-central.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gale. If you found our episode informative, we really encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And we'd love to have any feedback about our episode and ideas for future episodes by sending us an email at comments at ASCpodcast.com. We'd like to give a special thank you to our great team here who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor is Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Jim Masters, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, and Christina Norman. We really couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.